Though it was months before Robert was actually crowned, he won the throne at the Battle of the Trident by personally slaying Rhaegar Targaryen. When people think of Robert getting the throne, they think of this moment and the battle that preceded it. When Catelyn sees Loras Tyrell for the first time, she thinks he could not have been more than two when Robert slew Prince Rhaegar on the Trident. That's the touchstone moment, the milestone point, the decisive blow, the most important hammer strike in the history of Westeros. To be fair, we start during Robert's reign. And of course, the story of how the current king became king is pretty important. But even after Robert dies, people still talk about it. It's still very important. And we aren't even given a mental image of Robert being crowned, the actual ceremony, whatever it was. We don't have any detail, really. You'd think it'd be kind of a big deal. Not just a new king, a new house on the throne after almost three centuries. Sure, Robert was a Targaryen cousin, but it is still a new house. Ned doesn't think of the coronation, nor does anyone else who was there. And we have several possibilities, Jamie and Cersei. I mean, Jamie, Cersei does give us a mental image of marrying Robert, but not of him being crowned. Maybe she wasn't even there for it. But if she was, she doesn't think about it. Davos might have been there. He was something of a hero or a new figure given his switch from life of crime to rescuing Stannis. So he, good chance he was there, but he doesn't think about it either. Nor do characters without POVs describe it like Tywin or Pycelle or Roose Bolton, all of whom were likely there as well. No, the focus, again, is on these decisive moments, the battle and the moment Robert killed Rhaegar. And not the moment it became official through ceremony months later. And while the war was full of important and compelling aspects and events worthy of discussion and focus, this battle by itself can make that claim. The very spot where Rhaegar fell became immortalized afterwards. It got the name the Ruby Ford for the rubies that fell from his crushed breastplate. And people still search for Rhaegar's rubies to this day. But of course, so much more happened there apart from Robert versus Rhaegar. Many famous individuals, some who survived, some who did not, and tens of thousands of nameless other soldiers. We meet many characters throughout A Song of Ice and Fire who were there or who had family who were people whose lives and or livelihoods depended on the outcome. Some have visible scars or missing limbs. Some have suffered no physical harm, but were never quite the same afterwards. They gossip on the wall that Donald Noy had forged Robert's Warhammer, quote, the one that crushed the life from Rhaegar Targaryen on the trident. It's even mentioned as part of the House Frey entry in the appendix of A Clash of Kings, where they were. <laughs> the origin of their nickname is described here, quote, when Robert Baratheon met Rhaegar Targaryen on the Trident, the phrase did not arrive until the battle was done, and thereafter, Lord Hoster Tully, always called Lord Walder, the late Lord Frey. And Lord Hoster Tully was, of course, there and was his overlord who ordered him to be there. Who said tragic battles that put the continent and perhaps humanity in the balance can't have a little humor thrown in, right? <laughs> All that and more on this episode of History of Westeros podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 
Hello and welcome, everybody. It's another happy Sunday, another good time to be discussing A Song of Ice and Fire. We're really narrowing it down this time. Battle episodes aren't something we've done a lot of. It's not the first time, but it has been a while. This battle particularly important and meaningful. And as I indicated here in the intro, gets name dropped quite often. Hard to have a lot of discussion about battle details for this episode. Like there's a lot surrounding it, but the actual battle, there's not a lot of detail we know. That's true. We don't have a lot of like troop movements and then the left surged forward under. Yeah, we don't have that kind of stuff. So it is a different sort of battle analysis. You're right, Sean. That's a great point to make. You're kicking it off. But also, I like being able to get really close to these certain important events. I think maybe in the future we do one on the sack of King's Landing, which came just after, or the flight to Dragonstone and Danny and Viserys heading overseas. Little things like that where we've talked about them before, but we haven't really focused in on them because there's a lot more detail to be highlighted, a lot of interesting decisions and moments. And well, we'll get to that. Sean, you got any, anything special in the cup today? Pretty standard, bang, raspberry, naked, protein berry, and black raspberry sparkling ice. You're doing sort of in the league of the color of my thermos. <laughs> <laughs> Shout out to our good friend Nina, aka Good Queen Alley. Good Queen Alley with one L, or sorry, one, one L. Yes, one L, one Y. <laughs> two N's, two O's, two E's, but yeah, <laughs> one L. Her latest post is pretty relevant to this one. It talks about how Sansa's arguing with her father about, oh, I love him, referring to Joffrey, and how she might be able to convince the king to make her father stay in King's Landing after his intent to leave, but she's a little afraid of Robert because of, you know, how his visa presented. And Nina noticed how a lot of this is similar to how Lyanna would have felt at the time. She was in love with Rhaegar, apparently, and was stubborn about it and was a little afraid of Robert because she didn't want to marry him because for different reasons than Sansa's afraid of him because Sansa's not faced with marrying Robert. But still, Robert has worked into this story too, which helps make the comparison to Lyanna even tighter. So check that post out as well as her other posts in general, really good stuff. And she's got a lot of takes in this episode as well. Speaking of Nina, she is our guest next week as well to talk about Baylor, the blessed character that's popped up quite a bit. We'll be getting deep into his story and all the things that happened during his reign, some guesses, some fun, some dreams, some comparisons, real world stuff, other fiction. You got it. We'll get there. If this episode ends and you want to stay immersed, well, this episode is going to end. <laughs> it will not go forever. We've got you it's covered. A big if. Yeah, it's a big if. No, we'll just keep going. <laughs> this is the infinite stream. We will have you covered with suggestions for topics related to this one. Also, at the end, the answer to this trivia question, which is which participant in this battle on the side of the rebels slash Robert, Ned, etc., slew three landed knights or lords of the narrow sea? Which rebel participant? First mentions. It's such a huge part of A Song of Ice and Fire, as I indicated in the intro. It appears in multiple POVs very early in book one. So much of the where are they now, which is when we first see them, was determined by the Battle of the Trident. Not only is this Danny One we're about to quote, but it's one of the earliest paragraphs in Danny One. Viserys had been a boy of eight when they fled King's Landing to escape the advancing armies of the usurper. But Daenerys had been only a quickening in their mother's womb. Yet sometimes Danny would picture the way it had been. So often had her brother told her the stories. The midnight flight to Dragonstone, moonlight shimmering on the ship's black sails, 
her brother Rhaegar battling the usurper in the bloody waters of the Trident and dying for the woman he loved. Now that's a little bit exaggerated. This is part of Viserys' brooding. It's the version Danny has been told. Robert slaying Rhaegar, that, of course, that was a big deal, and that really did happen. It was a chaotic scene, as battles tend to be, and the sheer mass of men was large enough. But for another, Robert didn't have to win against Rhaegar. Rhaegar was a really good fighter. It could have been Rhaegar who won that day. And, you know, neither of them necessarily were at full strength when they finally came together. They may have suffered wounds. We know Rhaegar did wound Robert during their exchange, but they may have both had a, you know, damaged shoulder or wounded leg. Who knows? Nothing that's necessarily visible or obvious, but they may not have been at 100%. They had been fighting prior to that moment. Nina says it really is almost too story-like, except that we really, it really did happen that way. There was a lot more happening in the rebellion before the Trident and a lot more happening than simply these two going at it. But it's so easy to focus on this duel because it does feel like a microcosm of the whole conflict. Rhaegar and Robert and all their men around them and the two most important guys on either side. It's almost like a trial by combat. It's almost like everybody else could have just stood back and just let these two go at it and just, no one else needs to die. (laughs) Let's just (laughs) have these two fight. Keep that in mind. I'm going to make a point about that later. (laughs) (laughs) Nina says, for a little boy who was hearing all about this secondhand, that outcome of the battle would have been all too easy to think about like a story without the complex political and wartime context to it. It was a great point. Like, Viserys doesn't have all this other detail. He was only a, a child when all this happened. And he didn't have some adult to set him straight necessarily. I don't know that Willem Derry was there either. So he may not have known it all. And even if he did, he might have exaggerated, maybe in the same bitterness, might have been mixed in some of the same ways. You could argue that Robert was a heavy favorite, but he was mad. He was enraged. He had some false pretenses planted in his mind about what had actually happened between Rhaegar and Lyanna. But we're not here to trace out the events of them and Hall and all that. Not to find detail. A little bit of context is important. But the end result of their saga, with so many mysteries remaining, it did clearly play a major role in sparking the war that led to this battle, even if it's still filled with a lot of mystery. For example, Robert personally, because he believed Rhaegar was a cruel kidnapping rapist, I mean, in pretty much any society ever, real or fictional, you're supposed to take quick and definitive action when someone does that sort of thing to your fiance. And especially in this society, when you're a big manly man who has a warhammer and stands six foot six. Like, everybody knows what you're going to do if something like that happens. Of course, did it actually happen? That's, again, a separate question. (laughs) He certainly thought he did, especially when that person's villainous father just did horrible things to your best friend's family. I mean, Robert's full of motivation here. Like, you killed my best friend's dad and brother and murdered my spouse. I mean, my fiance. Like, that's terrible, right? Well, not murdered, but etc. A huge list of motivations, any way you put it. And in many ways, he he really saw himself as a hero. And a lot of people saw him as that afterwards. But in many ways, he really was. But Rhaegar, the guy he killed, may have been trying to save humanity, which that's probably more important (laughs) if he was actually right that he was doing that, which is another big open question that is not for today to tackle, but is important to acknowledge. Worth noting... Even if he was, definitively, if we found some proof, it becomes clear in the next book. Rhaegar was trying to save humanity. Robert still doesn't know that. No, no, he doesn't. He has no clue. He didn't know that even when he died. No one ever told him that at any point. So I I doubt he even heard it to laugh at it. Like, of course he didn't think that. That's ridiculous. No, I doubt he even heard the idea. Like, it was never even floated to him, probably. 
So the repercussions of Robert's victory were immediate and long-lasting. The heroic vengeance he sought was, of course, seen in different light by House Targaryen. For one thing, there's that bit about Rhaegar dying for the woman he loved, which isn't particularly true. <laughs> he may have truly loved Lyanna and vice versa, and he may have also loved his, his actual wife, Elia, and vice versa, despite all the drama around them. But he didn't die for them. Again, he was trying to save the world or, or something. And they, their lives weren't necessarily even at stake. I mean, it's not like Robert was going to kill Liana if he won. So he didn't know she was about to die in childbirth. Like, for all he knew, she was still alive. And, well, she was still alive. But anyway, that's beside the point. The point is that Danny thinks Rhaegar was a good, honorable, and noble person. And in some ways, she's right. So there's both sides see this in black and white, and they're both wrong to do it that way. But they're both also very limited as to their information. They don't have the whole story. So you can see why, from Danny's point of view, Robert and his ilk could easily be perceived as villainous. Look what happened right after they won. Tywin sacked King's Landing. Elia, Aegon, and Rhaenys were brutally killed. Like, how's that the good guys, right? Like, from a Daenerys' perspective, yeah. So that serves to set up the cyclical, dynastic blood sport Danny is thrust into from the moment she's born. And she gets to hear lines like this in her first chapter. I shall kill the usurper myself, he promised, who had never killed anyone, as he killed my brother Rhaegar, and Lannister too, the Kingslayer, for what he did to my father. That would be most fitting, Magister Illyrio said. Danny saw the smallest hint of a smile playing around his full lips, but her brother did not notice. Nodding, he pushed back a curtain and stared off into the night, and Danny knew he was fighting the Battle of the Trident once again. Of course, he's just imagining fighting it. He was not there. As we said, he was only eight when the battle happened and he was nowhere near it. But still, her first chapter, Battle of the Trident, Rhaegar's death mentioned twice in short order. Soon enough, we have Jon Snow's first chapter. And even he refers to the Battle of the Trident while thinking about how disappointing Robert looks. Like, that's the guy that did that? Okay, all right. Well, hmm. I'm not not impressed. Well, yeah, well, he killed your father, Jon, so (laughs) you shouldn't be too impressed. Eddard's first chapter as well, it features his reunion with Robert. Ned is a man who kind of represses his memories, I guess. It's part of the way his chapters are written. But many of them come flooding back when they head down to the crypts. Though he keeps it mostly to himself, as is his manner in general. (laughs) Robert is pretty extroverted, though. I sit on that damnable iron chair and listen to them complain until my mind is numb and my ass is raw. They all want something, money or lands or justice. The lies they tell... My lords and ladies are no better. Surrounded by flatterers and fools can drive a man to madness, Ned. Half of them don't dare tell me the truth, and the other half can't find it. There are nights I wish we had lost at the Trident. Uh, not truly, but... I understand, Ned said softly. What a setup. He's like, all right, you do understand, don't you? All right, hand to the king. <laughs> I'm going to name you like, oh, man. Yeah. He and Ned are but two of the many characters we already know fairly well. Robert, we've talked about a lot already. We'll have a little more about him. But there's so many other characters that we're going to talk about. We're going to retrace, relive, imagine, discuss the ones who we know to have been there. For most of the characters there, it was the biggest battle they ever fought in until perhaps the events of the books maybe started to supplant that. And it echoes loudly into the current generation. Again, like I just... We just read through these several examples, but it also comes up in, besides Danny 1, John 1, Eddard 1, Eddard 2, Eddard 3, Eddard 4. <laughs> it finally mm-hmm. takes a break for a few chapters until Ned's leg takes an actual break. And then 
Yeah, yeah. Then he has dreams and it comes back and he's thinking about it again, the Tower of Joy and all that stuff. But there, it just keeps coming. Ned maybe stops thinking about it, but Sansa thinks of it once. Bran thinks of it once or twice. Then a Clash of Kings starts with Danny announcing that she's naming one of her dragons thusly. I would name them all for those the gods have taken. The green one shall be Rhaegal for my valiant brother who died on the green banks of the Trident. There's a lot more examples, but I think you get the point. And some, a few, few more of them will pop up here and there, but let's get a little bit more to it. But first, Nina's going to mention here that there's a good amount of inspiration for the Battle of the Trident from the Battle of Bosworth Field. Battle of Bosworth Field was basically the final battle of the Wars of the Roses, at least the early stages when Richard was killed. And that's very similar because Richard was like a bit of like a Rhaegar figure and they didn't actually fight Henry and Richard did. They were really close to each other. Like Nina says, within feet of each other. It was the decisive battle. It was the battle that got Henry crowned King of England. And of course, this is the Plantagenet dynasty. So there would be 300 years of Plantagenet rule, which is kind of the opposite where this ended 300 years of Targaryen rule. But the similarities are there. There's even Richard supposedly yelling, traitors, 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 as he's killed, which Rhaegar didn't do. But Ares, his father did. <laughs> so you can see some inspiration. Robert, I mean, George, rather, big fan of that period of history. So anytime there's something that seems similar there, it's a pretty good likelihood he's taking inspiration. Sean, you noticed a few other connections as well there? Yeah, there was a Lord Stanley that was ostensibly on the side of Richard. And he was there with his armies. But when they started fighting, he held back. Mm. And... One of his sons was in Richard's retinue and, uh, and he threatened him. He sent a message like, I'm going to have your son executed if you don't join a battle. And he responded, got other sons. <laughs> Does that remind you of, right? Is that, that's very that's Walter, Walter Frey. Totally. It's also, and, but finally what happens, and I, I think this is key to some other thoughts we have here, is that Richard, there's details of the battle, like how they split up into three sections and you know, one side was outnumbered and the, shape of the field and stuff. But, but Richard identified Henry on the field and decided to just go for him. Just to he charged with his cavalry and thought if he could just take Henry out, he might just end the whole battle. Which I wonder if that's part of what Rhaegar was doing. I believe there's a very good chance right. you're right about that. Um, they, were, they had already so, been focusing on Robert prior to that battle, so it makes sense they would continue with that strategy. Yeah. But anyway, it, when, he, when he does this, that's when Stanley finally comes in and helps Henry. He comes in because <laughs> Richard's been separated from the rest of his forces. He realizes, like, I can decide this battle at this moment. Like, oh, he's trying um, to decide this battle. I can decide but, this battle because he's trying to... Yeah, it's like... Yeah. But anyway, also, like, Tywin, kind of waiting till he knows for sure how things are going to go and then swooping in to look like... To make a, a decisive victor there. But To make it very clear um, what side he's on. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So anyway, I'm sure that those parallels... I'm sure that's in George's mind. Another character that was in this battle is a guy named... Brackenberry, <laughs> nice. which Brackenberry. I'm sure that name has got to be an inspiration for George. And that, there's all sorts of other stuff tied to that. This guy wasn't... Okay, so if you go back a little bit in history, the thing that led Richard to... It's kind of convoluted now. We'll probably get details wrong. But part of what led Richard to being on the throne at this moment was two young boys who were in line for the throne were, I don't know, disqualified. Okay. And those boys as far as history knows, disappeared. There's no real solid answer what happened to him, but they were in a castle that Brackenberry was in charge of and, and then they went missing. Yeah. And so this reminds me of Bran and Rickon, mm -hmm. like that people, some people or, believe that they were killed. Or Aegon and Maybe Rain Brackenberry was behind yeah. that. Although we know what happened. Uh, uh, but still, there were two uh, of them. Right, yeah, the, 
you know, there's all kinds of like pairs of potential princes that were someone might be responsible for having killed in one way or the other. I, I, anyway, it, this is a story called The Princess in the Tower. Right. That there's all Which George is also barred it. for The Princess in the Tower, yes. Yeah, yeah. Again, <laughs> so millions of parallels coming from that. That's and awesome. One last little bit that Nina also brought up later on is that supposedly, and, and I also wonder maybe if this could be the case for Robert, is that Henry was crowned right there on the field. That Richard's crown was found and Just put it right given on. to Henry... Right then and there. So maybe that's why there's no thought or memory of some ceremony later. Mm. And why well, they it wouldn't is have had a crown important. there. Because Aries's crown, Aries would have still been wearing the crown or whatever. Mm. And they would have made yeah, a new one. I guess that's good. But yeah. you're right, though. They may have, it may have been made of kind of made official. Like, all right, he's now the king. He'd already made his claim. So with that, yeah. while Aries is still alive, I guess they probably can't say he's king yet. But it, was, it was, had become almost a foregone conclusion, especially when Tywin <laughs> jumped in. And, and it seems like there would be some big pomp and circumstance ceremony as a default, but I could see Robert being like, nah, I'm not doing all that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Let's just have a tournament instead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I want to fight. Yeah. Now that's, speaking of jokes like that, Ares and Rhaegar and this council and everybody didn't take Robert's rebellion very seriously at first. After all, Rhaegar was hanging out at the Tower of Joy. That's not exactly where you go when you think there's a serious rebellion happening. And the Kingsguard weren't sent out to do anything about it. They held back at King's Landing or some of them were with Rhaegar. Sure, Ares had gone way too far with how he treated Brandon and Ricard, but it could be resolved, right? It didn't have to come to war. Well, apparently not. Ned famously evaded capture, returned to the north. We see quite a few versions of this story. They were very ready to support him, though, when he got home. I mean, the north stands for its murdered lords and they killed the lord and his heir. That's a really big deal. Brandon was probably kind of popular. Lord Ricard was... I don't know how popular he was, but he was the Stark in Winterfell. There's nothing to indicate he was some sort of villain to the rest of the North, so they probably did what they would expect him to do, which is get ready to fight. Robert made it back to the Stormlands and started sorting things out down there, kicking butt, and John Aaron was settling things in the Vale because in none of these regions except maybe the North was it, yeah, we're all for you. There was definitely holdouts. There were loyalists, people who stayed true to the Targaryens in all these regions, again, except for the North, apparently. Riverlands, yes, yeah, same thing. Not everyone was with the Tullys. The Tullys had a- themselves had a long, unbroken streak of backing the Targaryens, dating back to Aegon the Conqueror, because he's the one who put them in charge. And so they had stayed loyal to that for a long time until, until this. Ares replaced his hand, Owen Merriweather, on the grounds of allowing all this to happen. He let it get out of hand. He's like, you were too slow to do anything about it. Ares started getting paranoid, like maybe, he's, maybe this guy's involved. He should have replaced himself for allowing all this. <laughs> now that's that's the right move right there, Sean. You got it. Now remember, o- o- Owen Merriweather is the grandfather of Orton Merriweather, who is the one who is married to Tana, Tana Merriweather, who is, you know, intriguing with slash against Cersei there quite a bit in the latter stages of the books, and it's good stuff, but also not very related to this. So then Ares appointed John Connington, who he saw is kind of a counter to Robert. He's like, ah. Oh, You've got a storm lord who's young and energetic and a great warrior. I've got a storm lord who's young and energetic and a great warrior. And mine has red hair. Well, that didn't help. It was an interesting play, but it didn't work. Connington was a little too concerned with being a hero. He wanted to kill Robert himself. Hmm. Sounds familiar. It sounds like something you just mentioned, Sean. (laughs) He wasn't concerned with killing Robert so much as doing it himself, which is something he laments later, something that Blackheart Toyne disabuses him of his, his 
false memories. Like, no, you you really did screw that up. Tywin would have just burned the town. <laughs> and that would have been that. <laughs> and the reason it was a big mistake was Connington was in a hurry. He was trying to stop all these various factions from linking up into one big army. That would have been a huge disaster. In fact, it was a huge disaster because those armies did link up. Connington was unable to prevent that, and that led to the Battle of the Trident. So the Battle of the Bells of all the skirmishes and battles and other things that happened prior is, at least from John Connington's perspective, arguably even from a mainline perspective, it wouldn't have happened if things had gone differently. And here's his memory of exactly that. 17 years had come and gone since the Battle of the Bells, yet the sound of bells ringing still tied a knot in his guts. Others might claim that the realm was lost when Prince Rhaegar fell to Robert's warhammer on the trident, but the Battle of the Trident would never have been fought if the griffin had only slain the stag there in Stony Sept. The bells tolled for all of us that day, for Ares and his queen, for Elia of Dorne and her little daughter, for every true man and honest woman in the Seven Kingdoms, and for my silver prince. And of course, he was fired and exiled. It's a little bit melodramatic, obviously. And he's, but he's absolutely right that a massive number of things hinged on the battle, on the result of the Battle of the Trident. And he was the one of the few people that could have stopped the Battle of the Trident from happening in the first place. It's not something he can really blame on other people that much. It's really just a few things. A few people, only a few people had the power to change what happened there. And then it all comes back around, of course, for him with Varys and young Griff and the plot there. But again, a bit outside of the scope of today, but it is another thing that was created because of this very specific way the Battle of the Trident went. Meanwhile, this, after the Battle of the Bells, is when, while Connington's getting exiled, John Aaron marries Lysa Tully and Eddard Stark marries Catelyn Tully, and boom, that alliance is locked in and ready to go. By the time Rhaegar was marching to fight at the Battle of the Trident, he had already condemned the Targaryens as the ruling dynasty of Westeros, Nina writes, and why is that? Well, it's because this war began with tyranny. Ares, this, his execution of Brandon and Rickard, there's just no justification for that. It was not <laughs> the act of a just king, of a sane king. It violates a number of traditions and laws, as well as just pisses people off. And he didn't stop there, right? He demanded the heads of Ned and Robert, which is like, wait, why? What did they do? <laughs> so there was no real settlement to be made. This is obviously an irrational thing, and you can understand why people would rebel against that. But Rhaegar, rather than saying, look, my dad screwed up. He shouldn't have done that. He's like, nope, but my, we're going to march. We're going to defeat you. You rose up against us. We're going to defeat you. There's no, your rebellion was just. We're going to negotiate. There didn't seem to have been any attempts there to talk. Maybe there were. Maybe they were already past that point. Maybe it was just not feasible. Maybe we don't hear about that. But Rhaegar's basically, by getting an army together and choosing to fight Robert, he's basically saying, no, what we did was right. You got to live with it. And that's, that's not going to sit well with a lot of people, is it, Sean? It's not, but I don't know if the flip side would sit well either. I, I don't point. know if this is totally a, a, a bad play on Rhaegar's part. He might still have had some intention to negotiate but he can do it better with one victor under his belt, mm. right? If he can, mm. like, he might get more support of his own people behind That's this negotiation. He might have more leverage against Robert or whoever in a negotiation if he can win one key battle. Uh, he also might have been somewhat informed on everything that had happened and had pressures of lords around him. 
like I'm not saying he was absolutely justified in immediately riding off the battle. Like if he had gone and killed his own dad, like maybe that would have been more justifiable. But would he now be a hero and everyone would accept him as king if he killed his own dad, Kingslayer? And king? like, what is he supposed to do? It seems like this is the default correct thing to do. And other things that maybe he could have, should have done, he still could potentially do after this if he hadn't been killed. Like mm-hmm. if he had won this battle, he might have been able to do all the things we wish he had done, you know? That makes a lot of sense. And I, and I, my next point here is, comes from a similar angle, which is that after winning the Battle of the Bells, they were, they were in a position to negotiate. They're like, look, we're serious. And that's what made them, made the loyalists take them more seriously was, oh, wow, they won a big battle here. And now they've done these marriages and have a big army. Okay, let's talk. But it went straight to let's kill Robert as quickly as we can. It appears to be like Rhaegar gets an army together as quickly as possible and then goes right for Robert. Maybe it's more complicated than that, but that seems to be a pattern we're we're identifying is that just getting rid of Robert was (laughs) really just, (laughs) that was their way to cut the head off the snake and this whole thing goes away. And they were more focused on that than maybe the justice of Robert's cause or why people were upset or other things Ares had done. Because obviously Ares' injustices were nothing new. This was a peak of his injustices, but he had burned people to death before and done all sorts of other awful things. This was just maybe the, the culmination. And to be fair, it's not like if they kill Robert, the whole thing goes away because right. Ned and his allies are still upset about what happened to him. But they no longer if have they tell Ned, hey, we messed up, we're removing Ares from the throne, I'm in charge now, I, I'll make you hand. I wonder if, especially if you consider like prophecy type stuff, if uh, Rhaegar would have even been like, look, the North can be its own kingdom. You know, we'll give you your name. There's, there's all kinds of plays that you potentially could have made that would have ended this war, but we didn't get a chance for any of that yeah. to happen. You know? Bottom line, I guess you could say, is that it didn't have to come down to another battle or had Robert and Rhaegar both survived that battle, that may have been, they maybe could have stopped after that and said, okay, look, we're both strong. Let's not just slaughter each other. You know, we can yeah. see where this is going. We're too equally matched, et cetera. So, Robert's claim was announced sometime after the Battle of the Bells. We don't know when it was made official, but it was probably kind of obvious before that. We already know Connington was trying to specifically kill Robert before Robert even announced a claim. So it was kind of obvious. For one thing, Robert was such a charismatic leader. For another thing, he's a cousin to the Targaryens. So the writing on the wall is there. If anyone was going to be king out of this group of rebels, it was very clearly him. It didn't take his claim to make that known. The claim just made it official, I suppose. But he didn't realize how much he'd hate the job after. <laughs> he was thinking about like, maybe they're going to make me king before it was official. At some point, he, it, it just came up. It realized it through the way people were talking or like, it just became obvious. I wonder when that moment was for him personally. Like, you know what? They're going to make me king, aren't they? Or I'm going to be king, aren't I? <laughs> <You know? laughs> it reminds me a little bit of George Washington too, that he, you know, was probably the most clearly identifiable leader after the, the, the war for independence. But... We didn't even have a constitution yet. It was like years later before we had an election for president. And at the Constitutional Convention, George Washington wore his full military regalia every single day. He wanted to make sure everyone remembered that he was the leader. You know, it wasn't, I I don't know if it would have been a given that he would win if he wasn't at least passively campaigning for it, you know? Yeah, so Nina points out that there is a lot that points to Robert that, that just makes it clear. It's not just obvious. It's obvious for specific reasons, not just he was wronged by what happened to Liana personally. Although obviously Liana and the Starks were wronged as well, arguably more, but clearly he was wronged as well. And there's also just his first notable act of bravery when Gulltown 
didn't rise for John Aaron when he you know called the banners. He attacked Gulltown to keep them loyal and to bring them back into the fold. And Robert was the first one over the walls. And he killed Mark Grafton personally. So it's like, whoa, this, this guy's for real. So as Nita says, that quite possibly was the first moment where Robert really started to shine. And it was from a very early point. And then he just continued to shine and rise and rise and rise from then on until it was just kind of obvious at some point, like, yep, that must be, this is the guy. <laughs> but even without that, even without Robert's perspective or even without the King stuff, the battle is huge. I mean, he's still, there's still the revenge. There's still, you stole my fiance. There's still, you killed my friend's father and brother. Like all that is still burning in him, even if you take away the other stuff. So gathering the armies, this is an important step. After the Battle of the Bells, of course, they couldn't just rush to King's Landing. They had to do those marriages, have the ceremony. Even if they were rushed, they had to, you know, it still has to be made official. Then the troops have to be gathered. They have to get their food together and decide where they're going to go. Meanwhile, the Targaryens are doing the same thing. They're like, oh, we better take this seriously. Let's get the troops together. Send people out to various regions to gather. Prince Lewin Martell of Dorne, who was in the King's Guard, was sent to Dorne to bring Dornishmen. Jamie notes that Ares reminded Lewin Martell gracelessly that he held Elia and sent him to take command of the 10,000 Dornishmen coming up the King's Road. So Ares was still like racist towards the Dornishmen and treating his in-law, treating his grandchildren and his daughter-in-law terribly and antagonizing them. He just kind of liked the way he antagonized Tywin when he really shouldn't have. He's just thinking that the throne would protect him or I don't know. It's a weird thing for a paranoid guy to do, but he's also not all there. So his actions don't have to make sense. That's the, the mind of a partly insane or fully insane person doesn't have to be rational. In fact, it's distinctly not rational. So he's kind of using Elia as a hostage here. And Sean, we talked at length about how morale is really important in battle. What's the level of morale you would have expect from these Dornish soldiers under a circumstance like this where the king is demanding this and has treated Elia badly in the past and made these racist comments? Like, how good do you think their morale is here? Less Al. Less Al. <laughs> nice. They have less Al, not more. Yeah. Shay's answer is better than mine. Yeah, you're not going to top that one, Sean. Okay. I should have just asked her, apparently. Clearly. What do we need you for? <laughs> no, no, just kidding. Just kidding. That pretty much nails it, though. Yeah. Like they would not be at their best. Whereas the rebels just cause, like they killed his brother. Like that's so like easy to get behind, <laughs> you know? One of my thoughts is that probably the average soldier wasn't aware of that. Like okay. if well, they the leaders were good leaders, yeah. they went and tell everyone that, right? That yeah. it, there's not, they're not all like watching the news and checking their phones to see what the king says, right? They would only know from what the leadership tells them and good leaders wouldn't tell them that in the first place. But the leaders wouldn't have good morale given that. And the soldiers, whatever they think about the king, aren't going to have the best morale after marching hundreds of miles away from the country to some other, you know, they're leaving their families and their farms behind to go fight for some other king that, you know, even if they don't know these specific details, it's kind of new for them to be relatively, you know, they have this more pride in Dorne than in Westeros. And yeah, morale wouldn't have been that high in the first place, I don't think so. And even with that, Ares was still not very trusting of them. He still you know, gives them the whatever, the they're not sending their best attitude of these Dornishmen coming into his country, even though it's part of his country already, you know, he's this Ares, you know. There's no accounting for this guy, really. 
but Connington's forces weren't entirely destroyed. There were there was men here and there, and it seems like John Derry and Barristan Selmy were likely in charge of getting that back together because all the other Kingsguard are accounted for, and someone went and did this. We know that three of the Kingsguard were at the Tower of Joy, and one was Jamie Lannister, who never left because Ares kept him by his side for the same reason that he kept Elia by his side. It didn't work in either case, really, but it's what he thought would work. Nina says it might have been unconscious good luck for the crown at this stage that its two remaining Kingsguard members were both Riverlander and Stormlander, respectively, John Derry, Barristan Selmy. So that, that had, was a feather in their cap for not all the loyalty going in one direction towards Robert or Hoster Tully, respectively. There's definitely a lot of oomph behind those two houses, and some people might choose to be loyal, especially if Barristan Selmy is staying loyal, then, you know, I'm staying loyal, et cetera, things like that. There's proud, noble figures to stand behind, even if Ares isn't a good one, <laughs> a good example. They're still like, well, we're, yes, it's now, you know, Ares maybe not, isn't a great king, but the last thing we need is to a change at the top. Like, the Targaryens, just keep it the same. We don't need to have a, a new leader that who knows what that'll be? You know, people could look ahead to Rhaegar and be like, Ares, once he's dead, Rhaegar will be in charge. It'll be fine. You know, we just got to get through this. So Robert's doing his thing in the Stormlands. Meanwhile, Rhaegar takes command of the new Crownlands levies. They're actually levying new men to fight this battle. And here is a quote that kind of refers to what we were talking about earlier, Sean, about how maybe things could have gone a little differently. Rhaegar had put his hand on Jamie's shoulder. When this battle's done, I mean to call a council. Changes will be made. I meant to do it long ago, but, well, it does no good to speak of roads not taken. We shall talk when I return. Those were the last words Rhaegar Targaryen ever spoke to him. Outside the gates, an army had assembled, whilst another descended on the trident. So the Prince of Dragonstone mounted up and donned his tall black helm and rode forth to his doom. He was more right than he knew. When the battle was done, there were changes made. <laughs> oh, yeah. And Jamie was part of them. <laughs> you know, it, it never clicked in my mind till just now that quote. He doesn't say when the war is done. He says when the battle is done. Good point. Good point. You're right. He's... He wasn't even going to wait for the war to, you know, whatever it was he planned. But I, I'm guessing at least part of it was removing Ares from the throne. Yeah. Some sort of let's make him abdicate. Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah. I mean, there's all the evidence that Rhaegar was already planning this with Tywin and with other things. And yeah, I mean, that's a whole nother story. But yes, there is evidence that his, the too little too late thing or the it, roads not traveled thing was referring to that. It's like, yeah, I was gonna, but I was busy at the Tower of Joy, <laughs> you know, and all of those. Yeah. I can imagine it's a tough decision to make for a son to remove his king from power. And it might be controversial. Mm -hmm. And as a default, the Kingsguard might not allow it. However, I think the Kingsguard would have allowed it. I think that they would understand, like, we're protecting the throne, the realm. Like, this man, Ares, is not necessarily... None of them liked what they were responsible, right? Yeah. Somi does not like that he stands there and watches Ares burn people to death. I don't think Rhaegar would have had to try to... Jamie freaking killed him himself. Like, yeah. he doesn't... You're right. Yeah. Like, maybe <laughs> two or three of the Kingsguard descent, and maybe there's a battle and two or three people die. But I think at the end... One way or the other, Ares is off the throne. Yeah, I mean, he had, I mean, at least I mean, had those three with him. Yeah, I don't think there would come to a battle either because I don't think Rhaegar would have been pushing for his father to be killed. Just, he would have been, you know, right. yeah, just put him in a little, yeah. a little castle somewhere and put some guards on mm. him and all that. And that's dangerous because someone could weaponize <laughs> Let that. him keep issuing commands and just <sighs> not 
Just act <laughs> like you're say, fulfilling Aries, them. <laughs> Aries might not even be aware that he's been removed. They just walk him off into some chamber. Put him on yes, a styrofoam iron throne. Yeah. 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 Like, the throne feels softer today. This is nice. Yeah. <laughs> just let him think he's still in charge. Yeah. It was too little too late, though, as Rhaegar says, yeah, it does no good to speak of Rose on Taken. Exactly. Yeah, it, it's too late. At that Unless point. you like fan fiction, I yeah. suppose. <laughs> <laughs> suppose. <laughs> then, <it's, laughs> then your opportunities are endless. <laughs> so let's talk about who the combatants were. On the Rebel side, we've got Ned Stark, we've got Robert Baratheon, we've got John Aaron, we've got Hoster Tully, Roose Bolton, Wyman Manderley, Crowfood Umber and his two sons, Sir Bartimus of the Wolfstead, the one-legged knight. Apparently, he saves Amanderly's life during this battle, according to him. And that's, but that's why he got the Wolfstead. You know, he's got some evidence to back that up. Like, what did he do to deserve that? Well, according to him, it was save his lord's life. Rickard Karstark was there. We don't know if he was a lord yet, but he was there. He may have been fighting alongside his father, or if he was already the lord, then he would have been leading the Karstark forces himself. This is something he refers to when he's about to get executed. He's like, you know, I fought beside your father, <laughs> et cetera. Roos Bolton. Oh, I already said Roos Bolton. Jorah Mormont would have been there. More on that later. He would have been the Lord because his father probably already abdicated, speaking of abdicating, and took the black. But he hadn't been knighted yet, interestingly. He got knighted after the Greyjoy Rebellion. So that's another seven years later. So Jorah probably didn't do a whole lot in this battle, at least not enough to get knighted. But Northerners don't get knighted a lot anyway, so... Also, Lynn Corbray was there. This is the famous moment in which he got Lady Forlorn. His father was fighting and got wounded, and Lynn scoops up the family Valyrian steel blade and goes on and does great stuff with it. In fact, he's the one that kills Prince Lewin Martell, although apparently Lewin Martell was injured prior yeah, I don't to know that. if I call it great stuff. <laughs> he <laughs> gets to claim yeah you're right yeah kind of terrible yeah <laughs> but at least he was on the right side he was on the good guy side Lynn Corbury is a pretty bad dude but at least he fought on the correct side in my opinion maybe not the correct side the side that's gonna end the world right maybe not the correct side yeah I like <laughs> I have mixed opinions on whether I think once I one side was truly the most righteous yeah yeah, yeah. from their perspective it seemed awfully righteous but with other details it's like well so we Lionel Corbray, who was the elder and who was still mad that he didn't get the sword because he did inherit the rest, may have been there too, but maybe not because that's why he didn't get the sword. I don't know. <laughs> Jason Malister was there, another another badass from the Riverlands. So there's a lot. There's there's plenty of other lords that we could name that were probably there. It would probably get a little old going through every single one of these and trying to figure out who was there or not and guessing whether they were what age they were or not. But there were a lot of lords there. We did say if we finish this podcast. So. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> but keep in mind, a lot of them may not have done much. Like Jorah, he may not have done much. That The way the battle played out, Robert kills Rhaegar, and maybe a lot of the guys may not have ever drawn their sword or swung it at anyone. You know, they did, it may have been over relatively quickly. We're not, that's another, yet another detail. We're not entirely clear on even how quick the battle went. So even having been there, they may not have done much. Some of them certainly did. But others, yeah, not so much. Worth noting, it might not have been super quick, but I don't think it could have been too long because that would have been mentioned. If it was like a four-day battle That's and they, true. you know, every morning when the sun came up, it resumed, that would be part of the story, yeah. and it's not. It would be hard to forget that. Yeah, like after on the fourth day, Robert, yeah, it would have been, mm -hmm. you're, yeah, I think you're right about that. On the Loyalist side, so the, the Rebels had fewer men, a total, but they had their men had been fighting battles throughout the war, whereas the Loyalist army here most of the soldiers had not fought in a battle yet. 
Or if they had, it was some other battle long before. It wasn't in this war. The Dornishmen, the 10,000 Dornishmen hadn't fought in anything yet. The Crownlanders who, the, the combined force that fought at the Battle of the Bells, the survivors from that battle did. But like the Crownlands levies, complete rookies, a lot of them, probably some of them had maybe never, like they're, think of the guys Dunk was training in, in the Sworn Sword. And some of them might be like at that level and had two weeks of training at most. You know, something to distinguish that. There, there is another factor, like having experience and, and training too are big factors, but not having it doesn't mean you can't win. Imagine if those guys that Dunk was trying to train were passionate about the cause. Yeah, they weren't. That's another factor. Yeah. One of the first battles in a revolutionary war, the Battle of Bunker Hill, it was just a bunch of farmers. It was just a bunch of American farmers who never been in any battle against battle-trained and experienced redcoats. And the British ended up winning that battle, but they got them to retreat two times. Like two times, the British charged and the Americans fought them off. They charged again and fought them off. And finally, the third time, they they took the hill or whatever. Yeah. But point is that rookie inexperienced farmers with their spears and rakes or whatever, they can win if they really believe in the cause. And I think that they're more likely to have really believed in the cause on the rebel side. Because from, again, without the magic stuff, which the farmers don't know about that. Like, heck, Robert, Ned didn't know about that stuff. Yeah. Why would the <laughs> peasant farmers on one side or the other? They Rhaegar's folk wouldn't know that either. So the 10,000 Dornishmen led up by insults and threats, they don't meet this description, but maybe some of them did. But certainly some on the rebel side did, I would think. So the rebels probably had more yeah. of that fire. You got to think every Stark soldier is passionate oh, about yeah. this, right? He, yeah. he burned our Lord to death and, and strangled our son. I mean, that's going to fire you up in this context, this, this setting. Yeah, they're, they're mad, big mad. And, and justifiable, you can understand. So Gulltown was maybe brought back into the fold under the errands. They might not have been too excited about their place in the battle, considering what they were forced to switch sides. We find out, at some point during Arya's traipsing around the Riverlands, or perhaps it's, yeah, I think it's Arya's traipsing around the Riverlands with the Brotherhood Without Banners, where she, there's some ruined villages. And it's revealed that Hoster Tully had come, come down on some of his own people because they stayed loyal to the king and he had to go attack them. And that, to this day, that causes some issues. Of course, to this day is only 15, 16 years later. So you can understand why a, a village being burned down, it's, it hasn't been the same since even if it was rebuilt. Partly. So other houses like Mooton, that's Maidenpool. They were, that's a Riverlands house, but they stayed loyal. Rhaegar's squire at one point was Sir Miles Mooton, and he was killed with the Battle of the Bells. They had good incentive to stay on the Targaryen side. House Rhaegar and Goodbrook were two of the examples of houses that Hoster Tully went to war with in his own realm. Darius, of course. John Darius, one of the Kingsguard. So that's a Riverlands house. You can see why they stayed loyal. Darius had the Targaryen tapestries still hanged, even in the time of Robert. The Wentz is a big question for me. That's the house that, that ruled Hall at the time. I don't know what side they took, but there's evidence that the Wentz were backing Rhaegar, that they were behind the tournament of Hall, that they were the proxy for the, holding the tournament of Hall, which would very clearly put them on the side of the Loyalists, especially given one of Rhaegar's three most trusted Kingsguard was Oswell Went. So, yeah. That seems like a safe bet. Also, you have the survivors of the Battle of Bells, like I said. A bunch of Crownlands, or sorry, Crackclaw Point houses, which are in the Crownlands, uh, fought for the Targaryens. Brienne hears this when she's in that area. Bogs, Brune, Crab, houses like that. And a very large host of Reachmen. This is the, perhaps the most important part of the army because it is more of a standard knightly army that is pretty loyal to the Targaryens. You got a story of 
Randall Tarley sending the head of, I forget which lord, some Stormlands house, Catherine, I think it was, to Ares after winning a small battle there that Mace Tyrell took credit for. Yeah. And of course, he was missing. There's no Lannisters, no Freys. Much of the Stormlands is out of it because they had fought each other and were depleted. I wanted to bring up, most people in the chat brought up the idea that, you know, if Catelyn's mother's a Wendt, Minnesota Wendt, Maybe that's that it. makes it you question mark for went, but that would point. point to them siding with the Tullys. That is a good point. Yeah, that is a tricky one, and it makes it more likely with the, with kinship that they would have. But I don't know. And also, just the proximity would be tricky for them too. I mean, not Harrenhal is one of the closest houses to where the battle was fought. Yeah, one of the closest castles. So they would it wouldn't be one of those where they could be like, let's just stay <laughs> neutral. I mean, maybe they did because they possibly they didn't have much help to send at this point, but. Probably they did. I'm guessing because of the Rhaegar stuff, they were more likely siding with him. But you're right. There may have been a... It may not have been a full-throated defense. There may have been a one-foot-in-each-camp kind of situation. And we pointed out in the beginning that there wasn't clear unity among any, maybe anywhere except the North, right? Yeah, that's true. That's true. There might have been people in the Riverlands on both sides. Yeah. Uh, there was also... Or on, from Harrenhal or the Wentz, even. I don't know how many family members in the Wentz, but I can imagine at least some of their bannermen being split on different sides. You yeah, know? you're right. There, This is like, think of the Blackfire Rebellions where your neighbor might be on the other side of you of the battle as you, whereas that would rarely be the case in other contexts. But here, and then another big part of the Reach Army was not there though. As much as there was a large contingent of Reachmen there, the other really large contingent was besieging Storm's End where Stannis was held up. The whole, this is where the Onion Knight incident occurred. So those troops maybe could have been put to better use up at <laughs> the Trident, but that's not what happened. Ironborn, yeah. of course, were, took no part, at least this part. They did jump in at the end, which we'll mention also at the end, but they played no role at this stage. I wouldn't have wanted the Ironborn on my side. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I wouldn't have wanted them on the other people's side either, though. If it's, if it's neutral, that's good, but like better them on our side than on their side. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm excused to take some of them out. <laughs> So if Rhaegar had won, just a quick question. We're not going to answer this question. I just want to throw it out there for y'all, maybe to discuss in the chat or just consider on your own. What would have happened to the wildfire caches? Now, Ares set them before the Battle of the Trident. He set them after the Battle of the Bells. So it's one thing if, if he had just set them right after his, his son was killed. He's like, oh, time to set the wildfire. you know. But he had already done that, which is a little surprising. But it shows his level of... Par he's, he's a very prepared paranoia man, paranoid man. So I guess would he have would Rhaegar just have had them removed or Ares have had them just like okay so Robert's dead so we can take these caches back out now or is Ares just gonna leave them there? He's like ah oh, I might have to leave them there in case I need them for something else in case I need to detonate the city for some other reason. Would Jamie have told someone? Would Jamie be like hey Rhaegar dude your dad's got wildfire stashed all over the city? <laughs> That's what I think would have happened. I think Jamie would have told someone. Yeah, it might have then proceeded. Rhaegar would have dealt with it. It would have maybe proceeded to the. The forced abdication from that stage, but which may have, although that may have been his cue to light the wildfires. Like, you want me to step down? I'll show you. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. yeah Jamie might have still killed Ares. <laughs> <laughs> Terra Incognito, who is regular in a chat, Cognita. revealed that she is not incognita. Good. Thank you. Revealed that she has not read Duncan Egg, mm. the Duncan Egg series. Mm. Oh my God, what are you waiting for? Please do it. You'll love it so much. So, yeah. I promise you. Ter I think if I had to choose George finishing. Song of Ice and Fire or Dunkin' Egg. I think I might choose Dunkin' Egg. <laughs> <laughs> it might be blasphemous sounding to some people. Tara just got one of the shirts from our Threadless shop. Yeah. Uh, in the mail, a bunch of people in the chat have gotten their shirts that they won from our Trial by Theory episode. So, yeah. Cool. 
Hope those were working out well for you, folks. And on that trial by theory episode, we also we were talking about the idea of working and how powerful we have to be. Could people do it from a distance? We're thinking about whether or not Rob could have gone into Shaggy Dog or something like that. And we we just neglected to mention that Arya worked into Nymeria from far away. Yeah, from overseas. Like she was on a different continent. Yeah. yeah. Great yeah. point. Very good point. So it's at least a potential. And Arya isn't some master wizard. So if she could do it. Maybe Rob could do it. I don't know. Hmm. Dornish James says, in the Riverlands, what has me curious is whether the Blackwoods sided with Robert or Ares. I think if they were pro-Targaryen, the Brackens would bring it up constantly. But Ares was Betha Blackwood's grandson. Yeah, that is a tough one. Yeah, we don't know. I wonder if that's the kind of question. If you asked George, he would probably like, hmm, he probably would defer or demur and not give a straight answer. But he might. He might have it in his mind. That's a, that is a good point. I'm, I'm not really sure. They maybe, maybe they just sat out. It's a really good. So that's a poser. I don't know how to. How old would their lord have been? Is it possible they had like a boy lord right then, and it was easier for them? You know what I mean? I don't recall if. Sometimes you know, if you have a child lord. Titus Blackwood. I mean, Titus Blackwood's old enough to have been lord then. He's yeah. gray haired, but doesn't mean his father wasn't alive. Okay, yeah. Mm. There's maybe something he says or that, could that be can like, hint at it. It could be the same thing where you have like a, an aged lord, like you know, an old lord. So that that's the same thing. Like if you have a boy child lord or like like a, a dying lord, like sometimes you don't get involved because or you have an out to not get involved. Yeah, it seems likely the bra- the. Brackens and Blackwoods fought in the war. And they probably followed their liege lord. I mean, I'm guessing that that might be why no one brings it up because they both fought for the same side. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. One of those times where <laughs> neither of them yeah. can hold it over the other because they both were on the same side. Yeah, yeah it'll be pot calling a kettle black, yeah. whatever. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's a good example. Pot calling the kettle Blackwood. Yeah. <laughs> 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 That's what happens if the Blackwoods and Kettle Blacks ever, mer- ever marry. You've got House Kettle Blackwood. <laughs> okay, Zanel's Sun Chaser. Zanel's Sun Chaser says, any Ice and Fire Con survival tips going to my first one this year? Ah. Hey, hopefully you get, you get there on Thursday because they have a Thursday night skelly party, which isn't that advertised, but I like it's, it's a fun thing. Any thoughts from you, Sean? I have, I have three tips. Oh. One is... It could be windy and 40, or it could be 78. You, you, you be prepared, especially for the tournament, which is outdoors. Yeah. You, you, you look know, at be your prepared weather. for a swing of weather. Look at your yeah. weather the, a few days before your trip to prepare, but also be aware that it might, the forecast might change drastically, <laughs> even those yeah. few days. What's uh, number two? Uh, yeah, what's, what's the other? Uh, another tip I would give is, and this might be easier said than done for some people, but but just be friendly. Just, I mean, every, I'm telling you, everyone there is there to meet new people and to hang out and tell stories. You know, just don't be afraid to meet You'll people. You'll be amongst and say your people. Or whatever. Yeah. This is, yeah. Yeah. You may never, um, you may not have experienced something like that before, being around people who are deeply into a song of ice and fire, but it really is something else in a good way. Very, very, very good way. It's What's three then, Sean? And three is that the, the, the location is about an hour away from the airport and pretty much everything else. So it's worth making a, a grocery stop, getting, I don't know, drinks or snacks or something like that. Because once you're at the lodge, it's hard to leave it and go anywhere to get anything else. Yeah. There's not a lot in a way of like restaurants or convenience stores or it, whatever It's a else, state you know. park, to be clear. Yeah. The, the convention yeah. is at Deer Creek State Park. So that's part of why it's 
you know, there's extra room to do stuff. But yeah, like you said, Sean, I was going to say that one. If you didn't say that, I was like, yes, make sure you have yeah. some there's, there's a fridge in your room yeah. so you can use My... It's a beautiful location, but it's not, there's not like a city nearby. I like right? to have just like some milk and cereal or some granola bars, some fruit. Yeah, just basic stuff. My other thing is I'm putting, one, I'm putting the panel schedule in the chat, which is almost full. There's a few things not quite on that schedule. Like there will be a history of Westeros meetup. It's just not on there yet. But you can look at the panel schedule there. And I suggest going to the Icebreakers event. I think it's a great way to meet people. They do different games where you like do the thing where you like put a, a, a character name on your forehead and people have to give to guess who you are. Like little Icebreaker game. It's just fun little um, way. They have a couple of them on the schedule, I think, too. You um, will not be the only first timer there. Yeah. Let's put it that way. There will be plenty of first timers there. Probably a couple dozen at least. Yeah. And we will be doing Quiplash again this year. Two different sessions of Quiplash, including Sunday night. And I'm working on a House of the Dragon-themed Quiplash pack. So that'll be a glorious good time, I hope. Yeah, it's the 10th Ice and Fire Con, I believe. But yeah, it's the first yeah. one, obviously, with House of the Dragon-themed stuff going on. So that's kind of a bit of a milestone, both a 10-year and a new yeah. content to, to be mixed in. Yeah, I'm excited. Sean's doing his yoga again, the Song of Ice and Fire yoga, which he's done before, which I think is a pretty cool, unique event. I was going to say, I think if you can fit your yoga mat in your bag, it might be easier said than done. But I think the first time we did it, my wife contributed some yoga mats to Tara, who runs the event. So they might have some yoga mats on hand there. But yeah, you know, it's a lot of standard yoga stuff, but I just slightly altered the names. Like some of them are easy, like Mountain Pose. Children of the Forest pose. <laughs> pose. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, pose. You got to be really big. Water you know? dancer pose. Christina yeah. K asked, is any of it being streamed? No, but they record it. And they on the Ice and Firecon YouTube channel, there will be pretty much all the panels, unless there's technical difficulties, are always released on their YouTube channel, which is pretty great. I don't think yoga will be recorded, though. <laughs> 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 or Quiplash, actually. But the regular panels will be not streamed, but recorded and posted. And that is the last weekend of April. April 2023, if you're listening in the future. That's right. A word from our sponsor, Smile Brilliant. I have been going through my teeth whitening and we have been mentioning that I'm going to show pictures. And at last, here we are. We have pictures. I'm not excited to show pictures of my teeth, but I am excited for you all to see the difference. One of those things where no one likes to show up close and personal shots of themselves unless you're just like super beautiful or something, which I'm not. So You are beautiful. Oh, well, thank you. No, no. <laughs> but just regular beautiful, not super beautiful. <laughs> not super beautiful. Right? Yeah, thanks, Sean. I, I, didn't want to, I didn't say that, but I'm glad you pointed out. I didn't call him super beautiful. <laughs> good enough. Good it's enough. Kind of like I see him. <laughs> but no, you can see on the screen, I put the teeth up on the screen. And I think you can most clearly tell on the middle tooth. Yeah, I have a one tooth that's been crowded out on the bottom and that gets a little shading and gets a little less attention than the others because it's just, it's back there and that's how it works. You can tell that one's been yeah. colored up. You can see that. Turns out it's hard to take pictures of teeth and the whiter they get, the more they reflect glare from colored things. And it's like, this is really hard to do. It took me a while. I was like, I'll take some pictures. And I was like, oh my God, I can't do this. It's so hard. But they do look good. They, it really has made a difference. And in person, you can tell even better. Like a lot of things, even with great quality screens, things in person look better. Like great artwork. Yes, my teeth are a work of art. But you do get 20% off this process with the code Westeros at Smile Brilliant. Make your teeth whiter. I wanted to spread this out so you could see that even after three months have passed, I started this three months ago. I could have done it in a matter of like two or three weeks if I had been aggressive about it. But I, I wanted to space it out so that y'all could see that even with time passing, there was still progress. So it wasn't like a short-term solution. 
Lord Avocado in the chat said, nice, mate. Your teeth are looking so white that I kind of want to name them to the King's Guard. Good <laughs> progress. I love that. <laughs> Thanks, Lord Avocado. That's hilarious. Okay. <laughs> They're white walkers. White <laughs> chompers. Yes. <laughs> Once again, that's 20% off with code Westeros, smilebrilliant.com. They've been a great sponsor. So yeah. I hope you check them out and help your teeth. Brilliant sponsor, I must say. <laughs> The Ruby Ford. In yet another example of the memory of the Battle of the Trident, echoing throughout history in Song of Ice and Fire, Arya and Micah go searching for Rhaegar's rubies in Sansa 1, A Game of Thrones. 15-ish years before is when the armies actually clashed there. What became known as the Ruby Ford is not far from King's Landing. And what's interesting is, I don't know if, if it maybe didn't have a name at all before, or if the former name was forgotten, or if it just got a name for the first time because of this. It was the Sapphire Ford before, yeah. So under normal circumstances, I think the distance from Heron Hall to King's Landing is about two weeks. And this is a really similar location, genuinely speaking, or generally speaking. So if they were rushing, which they probably were, cut it down a few days, maybe nine, 10 days, something like that. We'll say it was pretty quick that they left King's Landing. When Jamie hears that last words he ever heard from Rhaegar Targaryen, it's probably only about nine or so days before the battle happened. And as we probably extrapolated before. It was probably a one-day, one, day, one, one afternoon type of battle. Not an all-day, not a multi-day grind. So it's not clear if they were just trying to stop Robert from advancing on King's Landing or just trying to kill Robert specifically or just trying to win a battle and then negotiate from strength, right? A bunch of mysteries here, both in their goal, their decision-making, and behind all that is the motivations that we're uncertain of. We're a lot clearer on the motivations on the rebel side. And most of the loyalists are just defending the king that they swore to defend and the prince they supported. But Rhaegar's motivations, his timing, that's where there's a whole lot of wiggle room and confusion and mystery and room for theorizing. As well, we must assume that armies of this size sent to head scouts. They generally knew where both sides were in the first place. So they're just like, how far away are they now? How far away are they now? So they probably both had a pretty good idea of where they were and where they were going to meet. So I suspect Robert and company specifically planted themselves where they were knowing Rhaegar was coming. And we're like, okay, we're on this side of the, of the ford. They're going to have to cross over the water to get to us. And apparently Rhaegar ordered the crossing straight away, almost perhaps right away, which is very curious. Robert's army was surely happy enough to claim the advantage. Like, we have the high ground. They're going to let us have the high ground. But why, right? Let's have a quote first. Of the famous battle on the Trident, much has been written and said, but all know that the two armies clashed at the crossing that would ever after be called the Ruby Ford for the scattered rubies on Prince Rhaegar's armor. The opponents were well-matched. Rhaegar's forces numbered some 40,000, a tenth part of which were anointed knights, while the rebels had somewhat fewer men, but those they possessed were tested in battle, while much of Rhaegar's force Rhaegar's force was raw and new. Yeah, so the armies didn't really, situation didn't really favor Rhaegar unless he was overconfident in their quantity, which he's not a dummy. I mean, he's not a big battle experienced guy, but this is still basic stuff. Was it his belief in destiny that he just didn't think he could lose? Or was he just regular old overconfident or some combination of both? What do you think, Sean? It's kind of an odd decision to just go straight, you know? What, what does this speak? What does this say to you? It's possible that he 
knew he couldn't win mm-hmm. either way. Like maybe again, it's I don't know if that totally makes sense, but but he figured he's going to die no matter other, what. Yeah, like maybe mm-hmm. maybe he had a vision. I don't know. I don't know what could explain it. Like a vision of Robert on a throne doesn't necessarily explain it. Although maybe he thought he could change destiny or maybe he thought he needed to change destiny or but maybe he thought it was some, maybe he knew that his father wasn't going to be king anymore. And so he's going to be king. Or maybe Robert will. He, anyway, I, I might be getting a little ahead of myself because I think I had to know this later. But I will say here now that I think there's at least a strong chance that he thought he could just end it if he were able to kill Robert and just went right for him. Yeah. And it maybe all the rest of the armies and the battles, you know, weren't relevant or he didn't care about, you know, it'll handle it themselves or I've got generals I can Everybody trust. Everybody knew Robert or, led from the front by that point, probably. So maybe yeah. he's counting on that. Yeah. One other thing I think is interesting is that we don't know how many forces the rebels had. We know it was less than, sp- yeah, just less. Yeah. Right. But was it 10% less or half as many? Yeah. And, and that could add to it also if, if they did significantly outnumber them. Right. Let, let's say that it was close to an even match, except they had 10,000 extra Dornish troops. Mm. Then Rhaegar might have been a little more reckless. He's like, we're going to win this anyway. Just charge. You know, mm. we, it might not be the most efficient. More people would die than they should. But that won't even matter if I could just kill Robert. You know? Yeah. Especially if there was a moment when he saw him, when he saw this let's opportunity. Let's go. Yeah, here's my chance. Like, charge. Maybe, maybe let's it go wasn't now. his initial plan, but he took the, op- took yeah. the initiative or the, something. Their archers weren't ready. Mm. He could identify Robert on the battlefield and just said, go, quick, down, move. Let's just do it now. Robert is very distinct on the battlefield. As, as hard as it is to see people on a battlefield, like there would be his banners nearby and his giant helm and his just giant self. <laughs> Quick little side note, Henry and Henry and Richard's battle at Bosworth, he got off his horse and just went in amongst the men. Like he was trying to keep himself from being identifiable. Uh, <laughs> and he wasn't necessarily cowardly, but he just wasn't a soldier. He wasn't a warrior of any kind. Mm-hmm. He was like a financier and okay. a student and like he was like an intellectual. Richard was. Richard was a soldier a warrior, and, yeah. and battle-hardened warrior. And Richard like, there's Henry. Let's go get him. And Henry's like, crap. Get me like, off my I, horse. I don't want to fight him. Everyone get around me. Quick. Yeah. <laughs> and then Richard almost got right to him. Like we said earlier, he was within like a, an arm's reach. Of getting, Crazy. You know. <laughs> That's wild. You wonder if there was anything like that going on, but we'll get to that in a minute with like Rhaegar's Kingsguard and maybe Robert's closest men. But so crossing, here's what I'm, this is why the, let's lay out a little more why this decision to just charge or, or to advance across the river is a little curious. Crossing a river is hard. Even when it's the ford, maybe the ford was really shallow and they expected it to fill up and they're like, okay, this is the weather. Now's our best chance because of the situation of the water level. If you're taking a situation where you have two knights of average ability, one of them standing on a riverbank and one of them's standing in the mud trying to climb out of the riverbank, it's pretty obvious who has the advantage here. Now take that and multiply it by a thousand or whatever, however many knights are lined up on the bank waiting for the other guys to try and cross. It's also Pretty clear if you think about who has the advantage with archers. The guys who are moving forward are going to take more arrow shots than the guys who are standing in a fixed position shooting at the ones who are approaching them. So the advancing warriors have to take more arrow fire. Now, recall Edmure stopping Tywin at the Battle of the Fords. Even though Rob didn't want him to, he did it really effectively. And Tywin had a lot more men than he did. But they were very staunch with their defense of the Fords, found all the different spots that Tywin may try to cross. Tywin was looking for other places to cross, and Edmure really effectively defended those, and Catelyn watched it. Pretty similar, I think. Maybe there was a little bit of a, a pre-battle like this where Rhaegar was trying to find a way across, and 
Robert was effectively stopping them. So they're like, all right, well, we can't find a way across. We're just going to form our army into a fist and, and force a crossing. Or maybe to give Rhaegar more credit, maybe this is the spot that Robert didn't have prepared well. Uh. Maybe that's why he chose this spot. The archers weren't ready. He Maybe the banks were muddy on the far side and not the near side mm-hmm. or something like that. But why not take a defensive stance and force Robert to cross? Why, why not go elsewhere? Why not? Why be in a hurry at all? There are reasons. There are reasons for that. So let's try to answer that. One is, yeah, maybe he's just, he's just really concerned with killing Robert as quickly as possible to save as many lives as possible. That's a, maybe an unnecessarily friendly take for, on Rhaegar, but they didn't want Robert to get away either. Maybe Robert would withdraw, get more troops, and then he's a bigger army. They, that might have been a concern that if they don't take him out now, he's going to be harder to take out later. Perhaps Rhaegar believed, yeah, Rhaegar perceived the messaging favored Robert. This guy's the hero here. You're the villain. You know, maybe Rhaegar perceived that the way people were talking. It's not hard to see the way his dad behaved that people might prefer the young, energetic, just hero here. Like, we don't want that word to spread. More and more people might join his side. But an even bigger open question is Tywin. Tywin was in the field with an army nearby-ish, just sitting there. So Rhaegar's like, hmm. If he thinks Tywin's on his side, he might advance. And then if Robert flees, he's got nowhere to go because Tywin's nearby. And if he sits there, maybe he's afraid Tywin joins Robert. I don't know what was he was thinking, but there's no way Tywin's army wasn't part of the consideration of both sides because they had both of them probably knew he was there, out there. He wouldn't have been that far away. And again, scouts and all that, they're looking for other armies and they're going to be worried about some other army approaching from here or there. Who knows who's on whose side at this point? There's definitely people that might switch sides or haven't declared yet. So they'd all have to be wary about things coming from other places, especially with like the Ironborn not taking a side yet. Like maybe they would have taken a side at some point. You got to watch out for that. So all these things. Maybe he's worried about what his dad will do back in King's Landing to Elia, to his other people at King's Landing. Maybe he murders Jamie or maybe Jamie murders him. Time was not on his side. There's a lot of arguments that show, okay, I can see why Rhaegar was in a hurry here. But maybe he was just eager to go back to pregnant Lyanna, the Tower of Joy. I mean, or, or again, some combination of all these three things or all these many things, right? It's really hard to cipher through which is most important to Rhaegar, which other facts, because we're also probably missing some details too, right, Sean? Yeah, look, lots of things that we sort of suspected are details that George could give us, you know, just some... Someone present at the battle just needs one line of dialogue saying, but storms were covering and the and soon the ford would become uncrossable. You know, something like that would explain why he had or thought he needed to go right then. Or, you know, again, I, I suggested a couple of times that maybe just the archers weren't prepared. You know, if, especially if Rhaegar was moving quicker mm-hmm. than the scouts anticipated and suddenly was there and Robert was like, oh, crap, we don't have our defenses up yet. And Rager's like, hey, they don't have their defenses up yet. All right, let's just go now. You know, like, yeah. Even if there was an element of recklessness or uncertainty, there might have been just enough for him that like things he thought weren't going to go his way were going his way. Mm. And he just seized the moment, you know? So I, I agree with you in, in general. I would say that we don't know what the specifics are, but it's probably not just dumb. Like he probably, he had a reason or multiple reasons. It may have been the wrong calculus based on all the different factors. But I'm definitely not going to guess that he just was rash about it. But that is possible. It's also the type of thing that like hindsight's 2020 and the victor gets the right history. Mm. Like 
if Rhaegar had won, if Rhaegar had beat Robert. What a hero. Like, which, dang. Yeah, and, and it <laughs> seems like it wasn't like Robert easily overpowered him. It seemed like a close match, yeah. and Robert pulled it out in the end. So it seems like if things went slightly differently, if someone got a little lucky or unlucky, or maybe the only reason Rhaegar lost was he got a little unlucky. Yeah, maybe his horse Horses slipped. Yeah. slipped or something like that. And if he had won, it, this would be we'd be wondering why did Robert stay back in a defensive position? Why didn't he cross the four? You know, like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> very good point. Yeah, there, and and with all that, with so many unknowns, it's something that you know I'm a little skeptical. We'll hear a whole lot more about it. I'm not sure George needs to give us more detail about whatever happened at the Battle of the Trident. And there were a lot of witnesses, so it definitely could come yeah. up. There's there's plenty of opportunity for it. I don't know if he will. I don't know if he wants to. I don't know if he thinks it's important. Well, we I can won. understand being skeptical of it, but we've gotten so much so consistently. I don't know. Yeah. Good precedent set to give us it more. It hasn't stopped. Well, we have You're one right. thing that will probably give us more information. I don't know what the latest update is, but there's the stage musical about Robert's Rebellion oh, that's in the works. Very good point. Um, Whoa, I didn't know about this. Yeah, and I don't know. How, I, I assume that would have the Battle of the Trident and George is involved in that. So I do think that we have a very strong likelihood of getting a lot more context for this in musical form. <laughs> Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, because uh, George is supposed to be involved in that directly. Uh, yeah, I think or, he has been writing the script for the musical, I believe. That is really cool. So yeah, he's going to have to think about somebody's thing, maybe give us some answers. So that's that's really cool. Yeah, because if it came from someone else, we might not be sure that be, my heart to be accepting it as canon. But if it comes from George, it's going to be hard to not count as canon. <laughs> yeah, I should be clear, actually. It's unclear the scope of the musical. It is about the tourney of Harrenhal. Oh, so it might end, it, it might really be a very like self-contained thing. I had kind tourney. of assumed okay, that it yeah. would go past it. But now that I think about it, I think it's actually the tournament itself. Okay, so we wouldn't see like the Trident yeah. or anything. Yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah I, think, still, I, I don't think we would see It would still maybe It would give us though. context though. Yeah, not as much as we would have wanted, but a lot, could potentially. Someone else could look back on it, Bran or Dan or anyone really, especially Bran, but Danny is, is a strong candidate because she's already dreamt of it, as we'll see, as we'll get to. So there's all these takes, all these people who were there. There's some eyewitness takes. Most of them come from nobles. Here's a pretty precious one because it comes from someone who was not a high-ranking official, not a lordly lord or a knight, yes, barely, but on the border of being a hedge knight. It's elder brother from the Quiet Isle. Here's his quote. When I died in the Battle of the Trident, I fought for Prince Rhaegar. Though he never knew my name, I could tell you why, save the Lord I served, served a Lord who served a Lord who had decided to support the dragon rather than the stag. He had, had he decided elsewise, I might have been on the other side of the river. The battle was a bloody thing. The singers would have us believe it was all Rhaegar and Robert struggling in a stream for a woman both of them claimed to love. But I assure you, other men were fighting too. And I was one. I took an arrow through the thigh and another through the foot, and my horse was killed from under me. Yet I fought on. I can still remember how desperate I was to find another horse, for I had no coin to buy one. And without a horse, I would no longer be at night. That was all I was thinking of, truth be told. I never saw the blow that felled me. I heard hooves behind my back and thought, a horse. But before I could turn, something slammed into my head and knocked me back into the river where, by rights, I should have drowned. So that's probably our best account from a non-noble. It's lengthy. It's, it's weighty. It tells us a lot. It shows us what was on his mind. It shows us he wasn't loyal to either side, really. He just got dragged into this. It shows us that, yes, crossing the river was difficult. He took multiple arrow wounds, which is what we were saying. Crossing the river, that puts you at great peril. Of, that's when the, the archers would be most at their most dangerous. And you're crossing into that. I would guess that there were a lot fewer arrow wounds on the side of the rebels because they were holding a fixed position on the one side of the river. So 
guys like this were wa- wading into that. And it, as it says here, he was, I don't know what I was fighting for, a woman they claimed to love. Like, he doesn't even mention the throne here. He's not even talking about the crown. That's really important that, that this soldier, from a soldier's perspective, that's what he perceived this was about, fighting over a woman, fighting over love, which is like, eh, are we, why are 80,000-ish people fighting over that? I can understand that it's not that what he did was wrong or what she did was right, but this is a bit much for a domestic dispute kind of situation. From his perspective, it might seem like that. And it cost him everything. Now, he's, in, he's happy with where he ended up. He's like, I found peace and God and all this other stuff, and that's great. But he feels lucky. He's like, I should have died. Like I, Most of the people I was with weren't as lucky as me. They did die. I was strong, and that helped me survive the wounds I had taken. Other people weren't so lucky or weren't so strong and didn't make it. And that's why he says, when I died at the Battle of the Trident, because it's kind of like he's born again. He was baptized in the water and brought out. This was kind of one of the clues for Sandor being alive. Because <laughs> he says, the hound is dead, but blah, blah, blah. blah. <laughs> you know, it's like, but mm-hmm. Sandor Clegane, however. That's, of course, another story. Again, I think my my thoughts on morale of the, the Dornish people, like this guy is like, I don't know, I serve some lord who served some other lord who was on this side, like the people in Dorne, they don't know, they're even farther removed. This guy is closer to the home of this battle, if you will. But people from Dorne, they, they might not even know the name of the king. I guess they probably know the, the Targaryens, but... Uh, yeah. But I'm just saying they're farther removed. They would feel less commitment or loyalty or meaning behind this battle. You know, Absolutely, yeah. And it, it's a, such a, you know, to think about it from, I love thinking about it from this perspective, as heart-wrenching as it can be, it's really important to take a look at all the different perspectives we can get. And like, yeah, what it seems like to, Rhaegar Ray, thinks the world is in the balance. Robert thinks his honor and justice and his what's been done to his friends is in the balance. This guy's like, Two guys fighting over a woman? Is that really why we're here? You know, like, and they're all not sharing the full picture because they don't know it. So they, these are all valid, but they're not, you know, it means different things to different people. Nina mentions Raymond Derry's three older brothers also died at the Trident, which makes it a pretty bad day for House Derry. They lost three male heirs and the king, their famous Kingsguard brother. We're not sure how Jonathor died. He died in the battle. We're not sure who killed him, but... Maybe someone nameless, you know, it's a battle. It could be a number of things. He maybe took several wounds and the last wound was just the straw that broke the camel's back, not some great heroic warrior that defeated a Kingsguard member at full strength. But maybe that is what happened. We have no idea with him. But yeah, it was a bad day for House Derry. House Derry just suffered a lot in general after the fall of House Targaryen. Yeah, I was going to say, it might be worth all those losses if your side won. Yeah. Right? But they also are, now they're on the losing side. Yeah. And then things got worse in the War of, in the war of Five Kings, of course. Like, Gregor Clegane got a hold of their castle, and you know, that never goes well. Someone I didn't mention in the intro, who was probably at the coronation, but definitely in the battle, was the only living POV to have participated, was Barristan Selmy. He is perhaps one of our best remaining chances to hear more about the battle, but he was taken out of the in- out of the battle pretty early. Injuries almost killed him as well, kind of like Elder Brother. He took multiple wounds and eventually just, that was too much, you know, and then he was unconscious. I don't know if Bar- Barrison was ever unconscious, but he wouldn't have seen Robert Slay Rhaegar most likely. He had been badly wounded three times. One with an arrow, by the way, which again implies charging into this fraught position. And the battle ended when Rhaegar fell, so Barristan wouldn't have been able to do anything more after that point as well. 
In fact, it's likely, had Barrison been at full strength, he would have had to go through, Robert would have had to go through him first to get to Rhaegar. I mean, this is Barrison Selman we're talking about. This is the dude that, this is Duskendale guy. <laughs> so he's not going to stand there while Robert advances on Rhaegar and just be like, you handle him, I'll fight this guy. No, he's going to, my kid, my prince, I'm here. You know, that's his job. And we know he's always done his job for the most part. So Mrs. Barrison, the bull. Like, so Robert isn't going to just go through him, you know, unless he's badly wounded already, which is what happened to Prince Lewin Martell when he fought Lynn Corbray. So quite possibly, by the time Rhaegar got to Robert, all three of the King's Guard that he brought, two dead, one out of action, two badly injured to, to do anything. So basically out of it, you know, effectively all three of them were out. And maybe that's when Robert and Rhaegar came together because the King's Guard were gone. Rhaegar's like, all right, I'm, it's too late to back down. Robert sees him. Robert's full of rage. So Robert's definitely going to go for him. If he has got, Robert doesn't have a King's Guard at this point. He's not officially king, but he's got his close friends around him. But they know Robert. They know his personality. He's riding out after Rhaegar. They're not going to catch him. <laughs> he's got a head start. Like, yeah, go chase after him. I don't know. But, and they may have just left it. They're like, well, Robert's got to do this one alone. That's, this is, this is personal between these two. So that's a lot of really interesting decisions. A lot of different people that would have perceived this moment and have a variety of different thoughts going through their heads. Robert and Rhaegar among them, but not nearly the only two. Whether it's elder brother, whether it's the foot soldier, that's, whether it's Barrison's squire who maybe kept fighting. I'm completely inventing this person. But he had a squire. Rhaegar had another squire. Rhaegar had several squires. The other Kingsguard had squires. I mean, there's, there's people who saw the, the final moment that happened. And that we don't get any direct accounts of Yeah. It. Just saying. So here's the brief entry into the white book about him that day. It's only uh, one sentence. Wounded by arrow, spear, and sword at the Battle of the Trident whilst fighting beside his sworn brothers and Rhaegar, Prince of Dragons. Seems to be confirmation they were right there with each other, which, I mean, that's a safe assumption anyway. I mean, maybe the way battle, you can get separated in battle, but their job is to stick right by the crown prince, like very clearly, distinctly. Sir Duncan sends a super chat, says, happy Sunday all, jumping in late today, but I'm sure it's been wonderful. Well, we're having a great time. I hope the rest of you all are as well. Let's keep it going. We used a movie title here, The Last Duel, for this section. There are several accounts of their actual showdown. Here's the one from The World of Ice and Fire. Quote. The battle screamed about Lord Robert and Prince Rhaegar both, and by the will of the gods, or by chance, or perhaps by design, they met amidst the shallows of the ford. The two knights fought valiantly upon their destriers, according to all accounts. For despite his crimes, Prince Rhaegar was no coward. Lord Robert was wounded by the dragon prince in the combat, yet, in the end, Baratheon's ferocious strength and his thirst to avenge the shame brought upon his stolen betrothed proved the greater. You sort of see a little bit of the World of Ice and Fire's bias here because the book was presented to Robert and his family, basically, and his, really his descendants. But it was written with Robert in mind at first and then, you know, crossed out for Joffrey, crossed out for Tom. And <laughs> I love that <laughs> for the World of Ice and Fire. But it's got to be a little favorable to the current regime, right? And of course, it's not an eyewitness account. I don't think Maester Yandel was on the battlefield, but he may have interviewed people who were there. As we said, there would have been no shortage of people who would have been there. And like Yandel would have had the means to buy you a drink and tell me about the Battle of the Trident. Eventually, he would have gotten some dirt or some info or some straight talk from be enough people to talk to. He's eventually going to find some purchase there. 
I've been holding back on this thought. Okay. But I wonder if it was less glorious than the picture is painted. Probably. <laughs> I wonder if Rhaegar just fell off his horse and his leg was crushed. <laughs> and then Robert just got off his horse and smashed him in the chest with his war hammer. And it wasn't his triumphant skill and courage in battle. He just got lucky and took advantage of the moment. Or some other person chasing after Robert, trying to make sure he doesn't get himself killed, hit Rhaegar from behind, and then Robert mm-hmm. gets credit for the kill. I could see a lot of it. The, the fact that we don't quite get a detail of it. The final moment, yeah. Yeah. And I'm suspicious. And I that. think that, again, I, I, I've, I've probably got some details a little mixed up in my head, but doesn't Danny's vision include Rhaegar like, dropping to his knees? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And whispering How does the name that add Liana. up? Like, what, from the moment they're on their horses fighting to when he drops to his knees, what, what happened in between there? Yeah, how does he how get, did he on get his to knees? the ground yeah. and go to his knees? And he would and be so in a it, stream. It, he would be in water if he's on his knees too. Like he would be there, be water around him. Yeah, which you know, again, it's fine. But how does that get to the moment? Maybe Robert landed one blow or knocked him off the horse, and then. Rhaegar struggles to his feet but can't stand and fall. I don't know. I, I could see. I, I, I'm struggling to piece together the different snippets that we get. But the fact that we don't get a clear description, not from Robert, not from Bellerstein or the Maesters or anyone, makes me think mm. that it might have been a little less than glamorous yeah. the way it actually ended. I can see uh, that. Similar to how Ned killed Arthur Dane. Dane. Maybe we maybe it was a little bit of like less than honorable attack from behind by mm. Helen Reed that allowed Ned to beat this superior. That's a really good take. Now, opponent. let me throw something that backs you up here out there. George is highly influenced by a certain series called the Dragonbone Chair. In that series, very mild spoiler here, folks. A certain king became king in part, gained some of his fame because he went into a cave and slew this old dragon that had been a, a menace for a long time. But it turns out when he went in, the dragon was almost dead already. It was like mm-hmm. old and decrepit. So, he, But he took full credit and everyone's like, oh, he killed, oh my God, you did it. A single person went in because the dragon's in there dead. It's got proof that his sword's in it. You know, They didn't know that it was actually quite easy. And of course, <laughs> most people don't even see the body or it's just the rumor. And the rumor was all very positive and framed the way that made it look like he was this great hero. So yeah, now, Robert really did fight Rhaegar. That much we know. Like they, it, yeah. it may have, He may have gotten lucky. Rhaegar may have fallen off his horse, something like that. A stray arrow that isn't mentioned. You're right. So you're right to question the possibilities, but it may have also been as described. Here's Ned's memory of it. Let's, let's get another take, which again, isn't quite direct, as you'll see, but close. They had come together at the ford of the trident while the battle crashed around them. Robert with his war hammer and his great antlered helm, the Targaryen prince armored all in black. On his breastplate was the three-headed dragon of his house, wrought all in rubies that flashed like fire in the sunlight. The waters of the trident ran red around the hooves of the destriers as they circled and clashed again and again until at last a crushing blow from Robert's hammer stove in the dragon in the chest beneath it. Ned had finally come on the scene. Rhaegar lay dead in the stream while men of both armies scrambled in the swirling waters for rubies knocked free of his armor. So... That seems to indicate Ned didn't see it happen. And we said when he finally came on the scene, but he must have seen a little because he's describing both of them in detail, especially the rubies flashing like fire in the sunlight. And Ned's not like a super poetic, descriptive guy. He's more like a military man, you know, tell me what happened without all the poetry, you know, just more of a 
straight efficiency. But there is a way to read this that he maybe saw part of it and then was distracted because he's busy fighting people on his own and caught glimpses. How do you kind of interpret this? Yeah, I mean, I, maybe the the scene of it might have cleared people might have cleared around or been pointing at the distance or someone told Nate, oh, hey, there's Robert. And fighting, maybe yeah. even at, mm-hmm. yeah, maybe even at the distance, you could see the, the flash of sunlight, especially depending on where the sun was in the sky or what angle Rhaegar was, you know. It, the, the fact that Ned gives some of these details and he's not particularly poetic that does make me think that he must have seen at least some flash of the image. But it still does not, Ned still does not describe the victory blow. The courageous moment. The so you know, at last, he, he, yeah, in his he, chest. at last he yeah. comes in a scene, and I'm telling you, I feel strongly <laughs> that the final blow, the killing strike, was not to the chest of Rhaegar. Oh, really? I think that was after he was dead or immobilized. And he slammed him, and again. that was Robert finishing him off. Okay. That wasn't like the way he killed him or the way he won. That was like an, an after the fact moment. Okay. Okay. We know, yeah, he's clear, clearly that happened in some form because of the rubies and all that. But you're right, he could have already been down. He would like, Robert, like, so mad that he's just hammering him repeatedly because it's like, die, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, this is the yeah. same guy that 15 years later said, you know, like, I should have killed him. It's like, you did kill him. He's like, only once, right? So that does kind of <laughs> yeah. sound like a guy that would be like, all right, he's dead, I'm done now. He's like, his rage yeah, wouldn't just keep- be cooled the second Rhaegar's dead, it would take yeah. a little long. Yeah, I can see that. I mean, it's not a sure I can thing. think of a lot of other examples of the, the idea of someone being dead and someone like beating him past what needs to be. I don't want to spoil, yeah. I don't know, Better Call Saul or other, <laughs> you know, Last of Us, other things out there along this line. But but I, I, I can see him you know, smashing him in the chest multiple times even. Like maybe he even wanted to like just smash those rubies off his chest and he hits it and his hammer just kind of clanks and it does like... Argh! And he does it like four more times. Yeah, do you really Finally, knock all seven rubies free <laughs> with one strike? I mean, hmm, yeah, that is a little, maybe a little too clean, right? Yeah, you're making some, some in-wear-outs with this theory here, Sean. I like it, I like it. Nina writes, yeah, even though Robert was huge and hugely talented, there's not a lot of argument that he was just really overmatching Rhaegar here. Rhaegar was very talented as well. He believe, literally believed it was his destiny to be a warrior, but the savior of humanity for a while. At this point, he may have already... At this point, he figured out that, that wasn't him. At this point, he figured out it was his son, apparently. But still, it was his family that was going to do this, and it was his job to make all this happen. This is the son that he had just, you know, put in Lyanna, who wasn't even born yet. They just made this child together, and that kid isn't even born yet. So he's not done. <laughs> so he still thinks he's a, in destiny mode, basically. And we also see, like, Barrison in his thoughts remembers Rhaegar as a great fighter. Not, it's not just something he tells Danny, although he does that as well. It seems like he's being honest when he says that. Lots of people talk that Rhaegar was legitimately a good warrior. That doesn't seem like rewriting history or just pumping up a dead guy or whatever. Interestingly, yeah, Danny does see it. Here's her version of the House of the Undying, an image of that very thing, with a lot of other things mixed in. Then phantoms shivered through the murk. Images in indigo. Viserys screamed as the molten gold ran down his cheeks and filled his mouth. A tall lord with copper skin and silver gold hair stood beneath the banner of a fiery stallion, a burning city behind him. Rubies flew like drops of blood from the chest of a dying prince, and he sank to his knees in the water and with his last breath murmured a woman's name. Mother of dragons, daughter of death, Glowing like sunset, a red sword was raised in the hand of a blue-eyed king 
who cast no shadow, a cloth dragon swayed on poles amidst a cheering crowd. From a smoking tower, a great stone beast took wing, breathing shadow fire. Mother of dragons, slayer of lies. So it's really interesting. I almost didn't have a share read that second part because it's just all this continuing of the prophecy that doesn't really, or the vision that doesn't relate to this directly. That's why you had me continue. Yeah. <laughs> Because it's just so interesting that it's included with these other things. Like this is the category it's thrown in. It's part of this dreamscape. And so I wanted to frame it, show what context it was placed in. A lot of it is other Targaryens dying. You've got Rhaegar dying, but before that, it's her brother getting the gold crown poured on him. Then Rhaego dying, her vision of what Rhaego would have been, a tall lord with copper skin, fiery style. And that's a vision of what could have been with Rhaego. So we got Rhaego dying, Viserys dying, Rhaegar dying. It's like she's going back in time. And then it's her. And then it's the red sword raised in the hand of a blue-eyed king who casts no shadow. That's probably Stannis. And then a cloth who's a, maybe a fake version. And that's what we're talking about, Slayer of Lies. And the other slay, fake version would be a cloth dragon swayed on poles amidst a cheering crowd. That's probably young Griff. And then a smoking tower, a great stone beast took wing, breathing shadow. That one, I don't know. But it's probably some other false dragon reference. If, and these are in threes, right? Everything here about this vision is in threes. We've got three Targaryen princes dying, Rhaego, Rhaegar, and Viserys, and three false Azor Ahais, perhaps. Stannis, young Griff, and whoever the smoking beast is. Maybe that's Euron or something. I don't know. Anyway. Stone beast? Stone beast. I don't know. Anyway, we're not trying to... That'd be grayscale? Not, could be, absolutely. John Connington leading young Griff. So yeah, these are all possible things here. But it's super interesting that it appears amidst that. That's the point. We're not trying to figure out what all the things mean right now, if we ever will. But <laughs> it's certainly <laughs> interesting that it's framed this way and included that way. Danny also just thinks of Rhaegar at other times as a point of comparison. Like when she's getting ready to unleash her battle plans on Marine, especially the trick against the sellsword company, against the, the second sons led by Mira with the, getting them drunk and then doing the night attack. Danny wonders if Rhaegar was that kind of anxious, the kind of anxiety that she was feeling in that moment. She wonders if Rhaegar felt that when she saw the usurper's host across the trident. So again, that's in the Storm of Swords, late in the Storm of Swords. So she's just still just thinking about Rhaegar, this brother she's never met. And, but she has had dreams of and seen him in her vision. Hmm. Nina drops in an additional Bosworth comparison here. As we pointed out before, when Richard tried to kill Henry personally, and she adds a little detail, Richard actually killed Henry's standard bearer, a guy named Sir William Brandon, and unhorsed another Tudor supporter, John Chain. At one point, Richard was in a, apparently within a sword length of Henry himself, and he didn't retreat. Richard, Henry did, <laughs> but because he's, as Sean pointed out, the guy's not a warrior. Like, I don't want to fight you. I'm not a coward. It's just a <laughs> stupid idea. <laughs> like, you're definitely going to win. Like, what's, why should I do this? You know, what's the, what's the logic here? But Re Nina says, Richard just kept going though. He got surrounded by Henry's bodyguard and just kept on trying. Like he didn't give up. He, he was Robert like in his fury. Just like, I'm going to keep going. Like if I fail, I fail. That's it. Or like Rhaegar. Uh, or like Gregor, yes. Renina put in the quote, Richard's quote here. Win the battle as king or die as one. Very nice. I like that quote. That's a good quote. Did he actually ever yeah. say that? Maybe not, but it might be Shakespeare. But <laughs> it's still a great line. Let's pretend it's real. Another good example of this was Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great in the Battle of Granicus. No, the Battle of Gagamela, which was the third and most decisive battle where he defeated the Persian empire, defeated great King Darius. Darius was on the field. Darius had like 
seven or eight times more men than Alexander. He had way more men, but Alexander's men were much higher quality. It's the same kind of thing where the Persian soldiers didn't have very much morale because they were just like, you have to come or we will kill you or your family. You know, it's that kind of thing. You must be here. Whereas Alexander, they didn't exactly have full authority over where they were and where they went, but they had a lot, they were treated a lot better. But they were in a foreign land. So he went straight for Darius with his cavalry charge and Darius ran away. <laughs> Even though he had all his, <laughs> it worked. <laughs> so sometimes that plan does work. Cut off the head of the snake plan. That was his, I, I believe that's what, where the history books read it. They were like, cut off the head of the snake and the, and Alexander almost charged too far after him. I mean, after he kept running, they're like, Alexander, I'm, I'm going to keep chasing you. <laughs> and they're like, dude, slow down. <laughs> Bring it back here. They caught him eventually. So you're going to get enveloped by the enemy forces. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so months later, they caught him and one of his own men had killed him. One of his own former vassals killed him. So this is, there's military history supports strategies like this. This go for the, have the main guy goes for the other main guy to make it all very decisive and, and end it quickly. Word spread quickly that Rhaegar was dead in this case. And here is a quote. Birds flew and couriers raced to bear word of the victory at the Ruby Ford. When the news reached the Red Keep, it was said that Ares cursed the Dornish, certain that Lewin had betrayed Rhaegar. He sent his pregnant queen, Rhaella, and his younger son and new heir, Viserys, away to Dragonstone, but Princess Elia was forced to remain in King's Landing with Rhaegar's children as a hostage against Dorne. Mm-hmm. So again, blaming the Dornishmen. Look at this. Just Ares just can't quit. Other notable names. I skipped over some of the results of what happened with some of these people. Some of them I mentioned already. I remember like Sir Bartimus saved Wyman Manderley's life, may have lost his own leg in the process of doing that. Crowfoot Umber was there. Both his sons were killed in the battle. Lewin Martell, as we said, was killed by Lynn Corbray after taking a lot of wounds. Barristan, you know, recovered and was, Robert sent his maester to him, sort of harkens to what happened to Gwen Corbray when Damon Blackfire defeated him but didn't kill him. Dwayne, Dwayne, <laughs> Damon and Gwen mixed together is Dwayne. Damon sent his own maester to, to help Gwen Corbray. And apparently that's that delay, that bit of nobility is cited as pivotal in losing the battle. I guess that covers all the specific mentions. We don't know what like the Bolton men did, whether they were specifically involved. And this is one of the reasons why I think a lot of the men that showed up for the battle didn't really have much to do. It's not like two full armies clashed because there's a fort. There's only a narrow range of engagement that can happen here. It's not like a big wide. You hear of battles sometimes, ancient battles, where the front line can be like a mile. (laughs) The stretching end to end. This is not like that. This was a narrow engagement, probably. Now, we don't know how exactly how wide the fords were, and the ford can change in its width from day to day, given how high the river is running or lower. And again, that was one of the strategic considerations. Maybe the ford was low, and that was like, okay, this is our chance, because we can send a lot of guys at once. The river's high, we can only send a narrow group of people. Well, they're going to pick that off really easily if we can only send a, like a narrow column. But if you can send a wide group anyway... Point being, there's also no opportunity for like forces to be split or flanking maneuvers or anything like that. Yeah. So it reduces the number of different people involved. Right. So the focal area is very small. The, the actual engagement area is very small as compared to a lot of other battles. So that's really important to note. So that, which is why I think it's very possible that some of these lords that showed up had very little to do and just were like, they could, they could take all the credit and suffer very little. Be like, yeah, I was there that day. Never drew my sword, but I was there, <laughs> you know. I saw Rhaegar. I thought I saw a glimpse of Rhaegar in the distance, but that may have just been the sunlight, you know. 
Here's another quote about what happened of once people realize, like Targaryen loyalists, think about what they're thinking. Think about one of the things that was keeping them loyal and the, the thing that kept them on their side. For one thing is their oath to follow the king. That's, that's part of it. But you got to think that most of the loyalists, or at least a lot of them were, again, thinking past Ares. Like, okay, we're not really fighting for Ares. We're really fighting for Rhaegar. Like, this guy's going to be king later. That's the guy we really care about. That's the one who we think is actually a decent guy. Now it's like, oh, he's dead. Ares is still king. The morale drop must have been massive. Not only did they lose the battle, but the guy that they thought was the better of the two is dead now. And all of a sudden, they're supporting the pyromaniac lunatic. I don't know that so many of them would have been that excited anymore about who they were fighting for. Some, a lot of them weren't very excited about it in the first place. So you can see why they just... Well, here's the quote that describes the general chaos very succinctly. Some men on both sides stopped fighting at once leaping instead into the river to recover the precious stones. And a general rout quickly began as the royalists started fleeing the field. So you got to think that, you know, that when one side is running away, that's when the most casualties happen. That is a very standard truth of swords and spears and arrows type battles. Probably true of modern gunfire battles too, but different considerations are, are used with those. Anyway, when people are running away, they're running away. Their back is to you. They've dropped a lot of their heavy stuff. They're not trying to fight you, so you stab them in the back. This is actually when a lot of people most spring into action because look at what happened with Elder Brother. He was looking for another horse, right? He can't be a knight anymore without a horse. All these people running away with their stuff. It's a chance to get easy loot. It sounds awful, sounds cruel, but it's true. That guy running away, he's got a nice helmet. I can get him. I didn't want to fight him face to face because he might kill me, but now he's running away. And he's a traitor. So you can kind of easily, maybe not easily, but you can, in the heat of battle, justify what you're doing. Even though after the fact, you might be like, man, I stabbed that guy in the back. That, was, that wasn't great, was it? But I'm not going to tell anybody. And it's like this. It's like, oh yeah, I won that in battle. <laughs> you, know, you didn't say that you pulled it off a corpse you stabbed in the back. You're guessing that maybe Robert's killing of Rhaegar wasn't quite so as noble as it sounded. Like a lot of these other low-key... Everyone's running away. Let me get some loot type of things happen. Let me find a new horse. Let me get a better spear. Let me get a jeweled scabbard. Let me, I don't know, lots of possibilities. It's an opportunity to advance and advance your station in a world where it's kind of hard to advance, where you're very often stuck in poverty. So kind of understand why you would look for an opportunity to find maybe not just a ruby, but there's plenty of things of, of value on that battlefield from rich dead people. We're just some people just need new shoes. Yeah, I mean, right. I'm yeah. You, they, again, you got to remember, like we usually these stories are following the the lords and the knights, but most of the soldiers in this battle were just farmers. They're just yep. people struggling to get enough food to not starve. Just got wrangled into this. And so, just a new pair of shoes or gloves or something would be a boon to their life. Yeah, you're totally right, Sean. Totally right. So remember, the blow that felled Elder Brother took him out of the action and he floated downstream. He claims he was stripped of his goods first. Like someone did, the thing we're describing. He, he was in full kit when he got knocked unconscious, but when he woke up, he was naked. So someone pulled him out of the water, took his armor off and threw him back in. <laughs> and he floated downstream to the Quiet Isle where he says six of Rhaegar's rubies have floated down. It's very symbolic, of course, because the seventh is maybe meant to refer to Sandor, six rubies from the seven gods. The seventh god is the stranger and Sandor's horse is called stranger. And yeah, again, just want to throw that out there because it's not exactly part of the Sandor's thing. It's uh, quite a bit later. He wasn't at the Battle of the Trident. 
One thing I want to clarify, I think earlier you said something like all seven of Rhaegar's rubies were knocked free. Yeah. In my mind, there were dozens and dozens of rubies. Just six that floated downstream that they found, they mm. took that as a symbol. Yeah, and how do we know for sure there were seven? Mm. I think that there were, especially the idea that a bunch of people were scrambling for the rubies. Mm. I think there were probably like dozens of them. Maybe. And I mean, seven would make sense because of the down, gods, but yeah. you're right. There may be. But, it, but if, right, it, if the entire dragon was I, done I, up in rubies, I think, I think it would need more than seven. I mean, but I think that people would be scrambling even if there were just seven rubies. One ruby is enough to, to set you up and your for family life. for life. Yeah, yeah you're yeah, totally right. People yeah, would yeah. be scrambling. Yeah. Yeah. But if a bunch of people scramble for them, no one got any or one person got one, maybe. I I feel like a bunch of people got a bunch. That is kind of interesting. That six none of got downstream. Them. And it, the people who found those six are thinking symbolically like there's going to be a seventh. Mm. Mm. Okay. Can't be sure, but that's just my interpretation. It's a good take though, Sean. I like that. Yeah. I mean, yeah, obviously we don't know for sure, but I like that. I like that interpretation. Nina says, according to legend, after the battle at Bosworth, Richard's crown was found hanging on a hawthorn bush, and Henry was supposed to have been crowned on the battlefield by his supporter and stepfather, Lord Stanley. There's the Lord Stanley you mentioned earlier, Sean, the, the, <laughs> the Lord Frey of <laughs> equivalent. <laughs> Whether or not that actually happened, it certainly reminds Nina of the scramble for Rhaegar's rubies in the waters of the ford that happened after the battle. Yeah, good call, good call. Okay, let's talk about a little aftermath. A very famous... And poetic quote from Sir Jorah to set up a little anecdote here. At the trident, those brave men Viserys spoke of who died beneath our dragon banners, did they give their lives because they believed in Rhaegar's cause or because they had been bought and paid for? Danny turned to Mormont, crossed her arms, and waited for an answer. My queen, the big man said slowly, all you say is true, but Rhaegar lost on the trident. He lost the battle, he lost the war, he lost his kingdom, he lost his life. His blood swirled down river with the rubies from his breastplate, and Robert the Usurper rode over his corpse to steal the Iron Throne. Rhaegar fought valiantly. Rhaegar fought nobly. Rhaegar fought honorably. And Rhaegar died. Oh, what a great quote. That's one of the biggest ones, right? But what Jorah is leaving out is, I was, I was on Robert's side in that battle. I don't want to mention that. But <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I fought for the Usurper. I also stepped over the corpse to help him steal the throne. <laughs> he just conveniently leaves that out. <laughs> oh, boy. Might also explain why he didn't get knighted. Like you said, he probably just didn't fight. Like he maybe didn't. It was over before he had a chance to do anything. But D Danny's question is a little flawed. She says, did they give their lives because they believed in Rhaegar's cause or because they had been bought and paid for? Neither. In the case of Elder Brother, he said, well, I was ordered to be here. I don't really know why exactly what side we fought. You know, he says that part was above him. It's like way above his pay grade. He's not even sure. Like he's so far removed from that decision, he doesn't even understand it or have context. He just gets that's how it works. And well, he was going to be on one side or the other. That's how it always goes. And that shows, not to be too much of a knock on Danny, because she just is young and naive. Yeah. There's just no two ways about it. But it does show that she doesn't, and again, she's trying to gain further understanding. She Maybe she's being snarky with Jor here, but she is trying to get some insight, yeah. which she needs, because she doesn't understand this idea that that's not the only two reasons that people fight. Yeah, Most of the people that end up fighting are just drug into it. Yeah, and of course, the context here is she's deciding whether or not to buy the Unsullied. Yeah. yeah, that's important to throw out there. What's neat about the Ruby Ford is it's not the first time that we have a place that gets a name because of a battle. The Red Grass Field and the first Blackfire Bill or Bitterbridge in Magor's War versus the Faith. Those were not names that existed prior to those incidents. 
Nina says, perhaps in partly just in general to point this out, but also in reference to Jorah saying he rode over Rhaegar's corpse to steal the Iron Throne. That's a little unfair. Robert was very known for being very kind to the defeated. Maybe not Rhaegar, but Rhaegar's body was cremated, which is in line with Targaryen beliefs. So Robert allowed the normal barrier practice to happen. And of course, he also, at the same time, we know he sent his maester to help Barristan Selmy after Roos Bolton's like, you should cut his throat. And read the room, Roos. This is Robert Baratheon. He pardons everyone. Like, <laughs> it's, he's famous. He's kind of famous for that. Like, for making friends and people still to, this, to the beginning of the story before Robert's dead. They're like, Robert had a, was really good at turning friends into, foes into friends. And people still, some, remember someone said that to Stannis' face and they were like, don't do that. Don't bring that up to Stannis. Like, because Stannis is not good at that. <laughs> he was kind of jealous <laughs> of that. And Stannis is more likely to turn friends into foes than foes into friends. Another interesting note, in the aftermath of that Bosworth battle, Henry did, at first, start off purging enemies. Mm. But he, he switched and eventually said, nah, nah, it doesn't matter if you fought against me before. Join mm. throwing forces with me now. Little little conciliation there, which is kind of yeah. like, that's why Jairus is called the conciliator. He did that sort of thing quite a bit. Nina also points out it's very important that they burned Rhaegar's body publicly as well from a political standpoint because you don't want someone showing up pretending to be Rhaegar. Did the prince really die? You know, was it, you know, that kind of thing. Just to be absolutely sure no one comes, comes along later and claims to be Rhaegar. Because, as we saw, someone did come along later and claim to be Rhaegar's son. So this sort of thing does happen. <laughs> There's like, oh yeah, they could do that with this kid too. Hmm. Nina says, another Bosworth comparison here, following the end of the battle and the death of King Richard, his body was stripped naked and exposed for everyone to see that he had died. Just to prove it was him, make it un, make it, remove all doubt. It may have been treated substantially worse than Rhaegar's was. Of course, we don't actually hear about Rhaegar's corpse being treated badly, but Richard's corpse seemed to have sustained some symbolic mutilations, which kind of part of the medieval and ancient world that you would do that. You desecrate a corpse. I'm going to argue that's what Robert did. I'm going to argue he just smashed his hammer into his chest multiple times after he was already dead anyway. I could see it. I really could. That's a great... I never, I've never heard that before, Sean, but it, it really does fit. Again, it's one of those things that we can't be sure of, but it really does. Robert thought of himself as a hero. It's a good segue to that. And as we've been saying, there's a lot of reasons for him to think that way. He was doing the kind of things that you're supposed to do when you're treated the way he was treated. You know, if you look at it in a, from a narrower perspective. So noble behavior like this was just part and parcel of his approach. He was already kind of this kind of man. He didn't do it because it was politically expedient. Robert isn't really like that. Robert just, Robert doesn't get coaxed or, he's just as, as bad as Robert is, he had a lot of great qualities and those were really on display at this stage. Great charisma, forgiveness, that's a big one, mercy, but also just he has a lack of guile, which I think you can kind of appreciate that sometimes. Like a guy who just always speaks his mind. Sometimes it's rude, it's boorish, it's insulting, it's annoying. But at least it's not dishonest. You know what's on his mind. And I think at a time like this, it works really well because he's like, I'm, you know, he's like, I'm revenging Leon. We're in the, you know, he's going to yell all the right things to get people fired up and they would agree with him. And no one's going to think of him as a liar because he's just such a forthright guy, even if he's, his flaws hadn't emerged yet by this point. So yeah, we talk about the pardon of Roos. Nina says it's a brilliant move immediately and maybe in tandem with burning Rhaegar's body. Robert demonstrated that he was not here to exact vengeance or universally condemn those who had fought for the Targaryens. It was just to establish something new and better, give a little bit of continuity by having, not only did he pardon Barristan, he named him the new Lord Commander. So that wasn't as simple as just a, a regular pardon you may continue. It was, you're now my number one. You fought right next to Rhaegar 
You fought well for Rhaegar. Do that for me. And he did. I mean, Robert Barristan did stay loyal to Robert until Cersei ripped his will up and they fired him, right? Now, Barristan also would have gotten very upset had he been there for the murder, seeing the, the, drape, the bodies of the Lannister, of the Targaryen children, but he, had, he was still recovering from his wounds, so that was kind of a convenient bit of separation there. But Barristan still does remember that and thinks for, has a moment of rage when thinking about it. So let's talk about the last little bit here, the lion and the kraken. Tywin had been waiting. Most likely he had scouts. Like we said, the other armies were probably aware of him being there. But more likely, if not both, if only one, Tywin knew where they were and they didn't know where he was. Still, I think they all knew where they all were. But if, any, if anyone was concealed, it was Tywin. So as he explained it, I think to Tyrion and to others maybe, they had to make it absolutely clear whose side they were on. They, and they didn't do that by a great display of loyalty to Robert. They did it with a great dramatic insult, bit of violence against the Targaryens to make sure that no one's ever going to believe that this house will side with the Targaryens again or that the Targaryens would accept them because of what they've done. And that was Tywin's thinking, like, do something brutal and savage. No one's ever going to consider us as siding with them again. Our loyalty can be depended on (laughs) because how could we possibly work with them? How would they ever accept us back? That meant doing this dirty work, stuff that Robert didn't want to be seen doing because he's, again, painted as a hero. So Tywin not only saw the opportunity to get in good with the new regime and to completely divorce themselves from the old one, he stepped in and did something that he knew Robert wouldn't want to do. And he used his worst men to do it. He sent Sir Amory Lorch and Gregor Clegane. Yeah, yeah, yikes. Now that one's pretty well known. The sack of King's Landing, what happened next? Pycelle was like, yeah, let him in. And Varys was like, don't let him in. And for once, Varys was the, the one who was right. And Pycelle... Wait, Varys or Pycelle? Py- Varys was right. He's like, don't let him in. Oh. And Pycelle was like, no, that's Tywin. He's here to help us. You know, <laughs> Pycelle always has too high opinion of Tywin. <laughs> and Varys was like, no, they're gonna... That dude is here to do what, what he did. Varys immediately <laughs> knew what was up. And yeah, Var- Varys was right. So lesser known, though, is that Kellon Greyjoy, father of Balon, Euron, Victorian, uh, uh, and, and them, did a very similar thing. His sons pushed him to join the war during it, appealing to him in a variety of ways. Loot? Honor? Anything? Just reasons? They just really wanted him to get involved because, hey, we want to go fight. We want to be involved. It didn't work, though, until Rhaegar's death. And at which point, again, Balon, Euron, Victorian are like, the Targaryens are done. We got to do something. We got to, A, prove our where we stand, kind of like what Tywin was doing. B, loot. The same sort of everyone's running away. In the, the microcosm of everybody running away in the battle, now's our chance to stab them in the back and grab stuff. Same, same, same here for the Ironborn. They're like, the reach is flailing. They've just lost. Let's get them. And that's what happened. Attack some loyalists, prove where you're at. Ironically, which is always the right phrase to use when discussing the Ironborn, they didn't attack at full strength because they were concerned with what the Lannisters would do. <laughs> of course, the Lannisters <laughs> were doing the same thing they're doing. <laughs> Even more ironically, Kellon was killed in this fairly meaningless skirmish where they were just trying to get some loot from the Shield Islanders, which is a nice prelude to Euron coming back to the Shield Islands many years later. But Kellon's death right there in this meaningless skirmish meant that Balon ascended a seesaw chair just as Robert was ascending the Iron Throne, setting the stage for his rebellion seven years later. 
at the start. We showed a number of examples of the Battle of the Trident right at the beginning of A Song of Ice and Fire in several point of views. Does it continue to be mentioned a lot four books later, even after George has expanded the story so much? Absolutely, yes. Perhaps Ned didn't like thinking about it too much. The memories of it are too adjacent to memories of Liana. It's bitter. He doesn't want to think about that. But Connington, his bitter memories are fuel. (laughs) That's what drives him for a chance to set things right. At least, you know, the way he sees it. Quote, Robert escaped me and cut down Rhaegar on the trident. I failed the father, he said, but I would not fail the son. But he's not the only one. Check out this quote from Sir Beresford. I swore no oath to Dorn, Sir Barristan told himself, but Lewin Martell had been his sworn brother back in the days when the bonds between the Kingsguard still went deep. I could not help Prince Lewin on the trident, but I can help his nephew now. That didn't work out so great either. That's Quentin Martell he's talking about. He did try though. He did tell him, like, dude, you should leave. (laughs) But yeah. I mean, it would have been like telling Robert to leave or Rhaegar not to go after Robert. Like, he's just, he's going to do this. He's going to try for the dragon or whatever. Well, she, I don't think Barristan knew he was exactly what he was going to do. He just thought he was going to persist trying to marry Daenerys. If he knew he was going to go for the dragons, he might have <laughs> tried something else. <laughs> <laughs> and if maybe if Barristan knew Robert, Rhaegar was going to go straight for Robert. Maybe he didn't know that. Maybe he didn't know that was going to happen. Maybe that was something Rhaegar kept to himself. Okay, let's talk about prophecy and foreshadowing because of the fact that the Battle of the Trident still echoes throughout the story. Uh, might mean there's going to be some maybe rehashing or maybe it's going to have a parallel to something that happened or multiple parallels to things that have yet to come. For example, Danny seeing his death in a vision. What about what's going to come with regards to that? There's a prophecy stated around the time of the Dance of the Dragons that said many had heard the prophecy that the hammer would smash the dragon. Mm. That has its own relevance in that timeline. But of course, it's easy to look at that and be like, oh, they were talking about 150 years later when Robert killed Rhaegar. But of course, like a lot of prophecies written about in history books, it was probably a post-facto prophecy, something invented after the fact. But maybe not. In a world that actually has prophecies, you can't, can't throw the idea out. A most mysterious possibility exists for us in the future of A Song of Ice and Fire. Consider this dream of Danny's. That night, she dreamt that she was Rhaegar, riding to the trident. But she was mounted on a dragon, not a horse. When she saw the usurper's rebel host across the river, they were armored all in ice. But she bathed them in dragon fire, and they melted away like dew, and turned the trident into a torrent. Some small part of her knew that she was dreaming, but another part exulted. This is how it was meant to be. The other was a nightmare, and I have only now awakened. So she discovers Quaith in the room with her shortly after, and Quaith says, no one else is going to see you, or no one else is going to hear me. I'm, only I can see you, or only you can see me, which makes it very much sound like a projection from a glass candle, because that's the only mechanism we know of that can do that. So this is perhaps part of Quaith encouraging Danny to take on her destiny as Azor Ahai, which might point to it being a direct thing coming in the future of her battling the others at the Trident. That would, that would mean they got really far south. Or maybe it's just her Trident is Winterfell, where she'll battle them up there. Or her Trident is the Wall. The Wall could be seen as a river, a frozen river maybe in, in a dreamscape. I don't know. There's possibilities here. It, the point is it doesn't have to literally be the Trident, but it could be, which would be pretty amazing. 
no matter what happens, even if the battles to come are more impactful and more memorable than the Battle of the Trident, it's unlikely the people of Westeros will forget about it anytime soon. And it will probably continue to get mentioned here and there in A Dream of Spring and A Dance of Dragons and whatever else gets written. Dornish James says, I think the symbolism of, of six and one missing works multiple ways. There's this thing with the stranger, but also the idea of one being missing hints at John and being part of Rhaegar's bloodline being missing, especially if he, if Aegon Young Griff is denoted as Aegon the Sixth, then John would potentially be Aegon the Seventh. Yeah. A couple, a couple things have to happen to make that happen. For example, his name has to actually be Aegon, which is no sure thing. <laughs> but it, you can see how that would fit. Yeah. Kolnitsky says, they will find the seventh ruby in stranger's manure. <laughs> That's awesome. I love that. Head cannon, or more like ass cannon in this oh. case. <laughs> Ooh, ass cannon. Yikes. <laughs> what kind of device is that? Mm, That's the kind of ordinance that I don't want to face. Mm. <laughs> maybe you do. Oh, maybe you do, do. Mm. Oh, end this episode now. <laughs> we'll clean things up a lot next week with our Baylor the Blessed episode, who <laughs> would never speak of such things. Everything he does is pure white and clean and virgin holy. Hmm. Yes. Virgin holy. Virgin holy, yes. I made that up. It's one word. Or is it hyphenated? Virgin dash holy. <laughs> Yeah, why, do, why is olive oil extra virgin? What does that even mean? No one's ever even thought about sleeping with it. Mm. <laughs> yeah, okay. Trivia question. Let's wrap that one here. I think I bet a few people got this one. The question again was, which rebel slew three landed lords and or knights of the Narrow Sea in, the, in battle? And the answer is Lord Jason Malister. Yes, some people did get that. Yes. It said when Catelyn sees him passing, Catelyn's in disguise with Sir Roderick and Jason Malister passes by and she's a little like, oh, will he recognize me? And he doesn't, but she thinks about how he rides a horse like a man who has never known fear and how he threw three of Rhaegar's bannermen on the trident. Like, dang, that guy, don't, don't forget about him. He's still alive, by the way. That, could, that dude's around. He's still the, the Lord of Seaguard. He's the father of Patrick Malister. Patrick's the one who befriended Theon, much to Lord Jason's chagrin. He's like, you know, we fight. Our, our whole purpose, we're Seaguard. Like, <laughs> we were built to defend against Ironmore. In fact, I killed Theon's brother, Lord Jason. And, and remember, and Patrick is like, is that a problem between us? He's like, you only say that because you never knew my brother. He's <laughs> <laughs> like, if you knew my brother, you would think, no, that's not a problem. I, I have no loyalty towards that guy. <laughs> so... Yeah, I think that was Maron. Mar Maron or Roderick? Roderick was, one of them was killed attacking Seaguard, which, talk about going like a dumb thing to do. Let's attack the castle built to de defeat us. And the <laughs> other one died in the defense of Pike at when the war was ending. Anyway, so yes, next week, Baylor the Blessed with Nina. That's going to be a lot of fun. Very different style topic, but we're still talking Targaryens. There'll be some dreams and prophecies involved because we know those were in his head. His, his style of vision and prophecy was a bit more... Uh, of the seven and a little less of dragons, but we got to figure some dragons may have gotten in there too. Some other episodes we mentioned that you want to stay immersed. Blackfire Rebellion series has some very serious and similar echoes, especially the Redgrass Field Battle episode, which we do have a little more detail on the actual battle there, but still a different style episode. A lot of Valar Reredus stuff would come up here. Danny's House of the Undying chapters, which are in Clash of Kings. I think that's her fourth chapter. John Connington chapters, of course, Ned Barristan. So really, Valar Reedus is full of 
opportunities to immerse yourself in these related topics rather than some of our standard scripted or weekly episodes. But your mileage may vary and you choose what you like. We appreciate it. Anyway, we always thank you for listening. Thanks as well to those of you who support us financially on Patreon or Spotify. You can become a member and get access to bonus episodes. That's certainly another way to get immersed. Our large bonus episode catalog is available to on either platform. We have different additional bonuses on Patreon. We're not able to put those on Spotify just yet because their platform is newer in terms of offering direct support from listeners, but they are adding to it all the time. So you pick the one that works better for you. We also have regular donations through PayPal. You can make through our website or just support our sponsors, Smile Brilliant, or any of the other sponsors you see us listed on our website. Big thanks to Nina for her notes today. Check out goodqueenalley.tumblr.com and check her out live next week on the show. Thanks to Joey, Jesse, and Brand for our music and intros. Thanks to Michael Klarfeld as well for the intro and for our maps. Michael is such a great contributor to all the things that make our show look more, you know, yeah. real. <laughs> He's working on the Stormlands right now. Yeah, that's right. It's exciting. I just wanted to say that I've got my 10 one-minute movie reviews oh, yeah. up for the different yeah. Academy Award nominees. I'll Dancing Sean on YouTube. I will drop a, I'm going to drop a link to that in the chat, but y'all, if you had trouble finding it after you mentioned it last time, it's because Dancing Sean is one word, and it's E-A-N, like smooth. Yeah, there are a lot but, of ways uh, to spell Sean. So you know, yeah, no. <laughs> but yeah, if you look up it, two words, you won't find it. Also, sometimes YouTube thinks you're looking for dancing scene, <laughs> and especially with movies that have dancing scenes in them, it's like... <laughs> a lot of movies have dancing scenes in them, yes. <laughs> but there's only one dancing Sean. That's you. So yeah, check out Dancing Sean's reviews of the best pictures. He's very good at it. And you've been getting just steadily better at it all the time. Just your, the more you work on this, the stronger your content gets. And that's a great thing. So yeah, folks, Sean's movie reviews are, are really good. That's it, everybody. We'll see you next week for more. And you know what to do. Valar Rerebus. <laughs>